Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of MTG Rants. Today we've got our top eight episode. Ross, I feel like we're doing one of these about every month nowadays. Uh, so we have the new D&D Forgotten Realms MTG set is fully spoiled and out now. Are you okay over there? It sounds like you're having a hard time. Well, it's it's been a bad day, Tannen. It's been a bad, it's been a bad, day? bad okay. day? Okay, I just like, hear a lot of shuffling going on. I'm like making sure everything's okay. <laughs> I, I woke up this morning and I made sure I was up in time. Uh, though it wasn't difficult, the match started at eleven fifteen. But up in time to watch Roger Federer's quarterfinal match, and it was among the worst I've ever seen the man play in my entire life. Yeah, he got trounced, right? Yeah, uh, the first—it's the first time since before he won his first Wimbledon title that he's lost in straight sets. Uh, he lost actually in straight sets in two thousand two, which is the year before his first title, oh three, to Mario Ancic, uh, one of his early rivals when he was a junior. And he lost in round one, then came back the next year and won it, and then, like, you know, took over the world of men's tennis. Um, and, you know, and so the, here we are, you know, 19 years later, and, uh, and just didn't, just didn't look himself, especially in the third set. It looked like he just gave up and didn't really care. Uh, maybe, maybe, like, the, the knee was bothering him. I don't know. He would never say that. So, um, cause he's just recently come back from multiple knee surgeries. Uh, do you think Federer's done? I... Um, so you know, I've I've been I've basically called him done multiple times over the years, and each time, you know, he uh, he's sort of come back. It had a bad year. I think it was like 2013 or so, um, where he, he you know his ranking fell. He missed the the back half of the season due to uh, back surgery or back injury. I can't remember exactly. Um, and I thought at that time, I remember thinking, because the, uh, if, for those who don't know, like the aging curve in tennis is very, uh, very low. You're in your prime in your mid 20s and you start declining in your late 20s. And once you hit 30, things get really tough. You know, even guys like Andy Roddick, who was a major champion, uh, maybe didn't entirely live up to the, the expectations thrust upon him because he got overshadowed so quickly by Federer, but did, you know, win a major title, will go to the Tennis Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, he retired at 30. Uh, Pete Sampras, the, the man who had the record for most, uh, Grand Slam titles before Federer at 14, I think he retired at 32. Uh, so, um, you know, that, that, that's, it's a very much a young man's game. So at that point, you know, in 2013, Federer was 32, and I thought that he would stick around for a couple of years. If he was lucky, he would get one more. And he would, I, I knew at that time he didn't have a, an Olympic gold medal. It was sort of the one thing missing from his, his resume. So I thought he would stick around until the 2016 Olympics and play through that year at least. Maybe get 2017 as a sort of, uh, you know, uh, a farewell tour if he wanted to do that. And then, you know, 2016, he gets injured too, like misses, misses the back half of the season. And I thought he was completely done and he comes back. And wins the Australian Open, beating Nadal in the final in a thriller five-setter. Then, you know, takes, like, he had one of his best years. Um, didn't play as many tournaments, but he won Wimbledon again. Uh, he won Indian Wells, obliterating uh, Nadal in the finals. Indian Wells is one of, like, the second-tier tournaments that most of the top players play. Um, and, you know, just had an incredible year. Then won um, the Australian Open again in 2018, and it looked like, you know, I don't know when this is going to end, but at this point he's 39, uh, but he's going to hit 40 before they play the U.S. Open. He, his birthday is in August. Um, 
and uh, that's just completely ancient. So I cannot imagine he plays much longer. Um, we, I think we, we might get, I would expect we get one more full year out of him. Maybe we'll get a second, uh, is what I'm thinking. And I doubt he wins another major. It's kind of sad. Like when you get to see, you know, at least you get to enjoy his entire career, right. During like the height of your, you know, you know, back to, back to what to do. You were still in high school. I was about to graduate from high school. So you were early in high school or maybe eighth grade, uh, whatever. So two, 2002 would have either the spring would have been my eighth grade year or the fall of 02 was when I right. entered high school. But yeah, I was, like, I was about to graduate. I was about to graduate high school. So in the next year, I graduated in 03. So yeah, you kind of, you kind of get to, you know, your most formative years, like high school and college and stuff. You got to really, you know, what might be the, the greatest yeah. male tennis player of all time I mean, because you yeah. have to watch that whole career. And it's nice, you know, this almost the same time period for you. I got Tiger Woods, you know, like, and so we got to see some of the, like the all time greatest and you get to really appreciate that though. It is a little sad when they, when they, they dip out, especially when like they don't really get to do it all the time on their own terms. And I don't mean specifically him, just, you know, great athletes, like they get hurt at the end and like, you know, like Kobe was kind of a shell of himself the last couple of years because yeah. of the Achilles and stuff. I mean, and, Making the quarterfinal of a Grand Slam at 39 is is actually it's, incredible. Yeah, it's, like, it's, a, it's unreal, obviously. Jimmy, Jimmy Connors made the semifinals of the 91 U.S. Open at 39. He was given an entry as a wild card. You know, his rating was so low. And, like, that's one of the, like, the hallmark finishes of his career. It's just a semifinal because he was so old. Um, you know, Federer entered as the sixth seed <laughs> and, yeah, you know. Favorite, and, yeah. Yeah, and made, made the quarterfinals and... and you know, he's not, it's not like he's, he's, this is like his fourth tournament back from, from the knee surgeries. So, mm-hmm. uh, like in context, it's still very, very good. You know, I remember like Andre Agassi was noted for his longevity. I think played to like 36, maybe 37. And his last U.S. Open, which was the one of his, that was where he was most beloved by the fans. Uh, you know, he made like the third round or something. Uh, to me, but, the the wild things of Agassi is seeing like early Agassi versus late Agassi and how different he looks. Yeah, the, the long hair early. Then in the mid nineties, he started playing like started putting like a bandana over his head and he, he looked like a pirate. I remember yeah. seeing him in like jean shorts at one point. It was mm-hmm. weird. Yeah, he had some. Well, I mean, that was a little bit of the fashion of his time. And also, I think yeah. I think he started balding and like kind of wanted to hide it or whatever. Oh, yeah, Maybe definitely. I was like whatever. And like for anyone who doesn't know, like yeah, like Russell when, when Agassi was first good, he had this long, flowing, like ridiculous hair. And then, which is like kind of weird for a tennis player, you know, especially like male to have like that much hair. You know, you think yeah. like that gets in the way or would bother you or something. And then towards the end of his career, he was you know just head shaved like the entire time, and so he looked, just looked like a completely and like he was more conservative of what he was wearing. And stuff like that as well. You know, kind of. You know, I'm not saying it's bad what he was doing, but he like grew up. You know what I mean? Yeah, he he was he was like a punk kid early. You know, in his career, the tennis establishment didn't really like him, and then he sort of yeah. became an elder statesman. He was like the bad guy, you know, yeah. like the, the bad boy kind of thing. The, the same thing kind of happened with John McEnroe. Like now, he you know, McEnroe is doing commentary and, and stuff like that. So you cannot be serious, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The the funny thing with me for Federer though is I the. The match that he played that really um, elevated him uh, and brought notice to him before he started winning all these majors was that in 2001, uh, he played Pete Sampras in, in Wimbledon. And at that point, Sampras, while we didn't know it, he was towards the very end of his career. I think he retired in 03. Uh, but he was he had just won four straight. He had won seven of the previous eight. He lost in 96 to Richard Krychek, of course. Um, but you know, he was the king of, of Wimbledon at that point. And, and 
you know, one of the greatest tennis players of all time. And as a young kid, I, I was a Sampras fan. I liked the, the leaping overheads. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I liked how often he just hit two first serves. Like he, he played very aggressive tennis. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I enjoyed that. And Federer is, was 21 at the time and, or 20 and is playing against him and he wins in this incredible five setter. Uh, you know, ended up like losing in the, in the semis or something. Um, or maybe even the quarters, but I, I remember being really mad and I watched that. I remember watching that entire match on TV and be like, fuck this Roger Federer guy. And then, you know, a couple years later, it just played some of the most sublime tennis you'll ever, ever see. And, uh, and now he's like, he, he set this incredible record. Like, you know, Sampras hit 14 and broke the record. And then, uh, Roger broke that and then got up to 20. And by the time he retires, he's not even going to have the record himself. Like Nadal's already even with him, might pass him probably next year at the French Open. Djokovic is at 19 and looking like the odds-on favorite to win Wimbledon right now, and then the favorite to win the U.S. Open in a couple months. He could hit 21 by the end of this year. So uh, incredible that these three guys, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, and Roger Federer, have been all three of them so completely dominant. You know, every now and then I, I look back and, and just sort of, sort of see just how many they've won and how many any, every single other person has won in that span. And if you literally go back to Federer's first win at Wimbledon, so that's Wimbledon 03, and we're now uh, just let's assume Djokovic wins this one. Um, uh, maybe not. Let's 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 leave that out. So we'll go through the French Open in 2021. So we've got 19 years of of tournaments. Because we're taking two, yeah, we're going 19 years of tournaments, but Wimbledon wasn't held last year. So that's 75 major tournaments, and they have together 59 of them. Yes, yeah, so like the, the large majority, yeah. Am I doing that math right? Hold on. I, Let's, I don't uh, the math guy. Uh, so it's, it's eight, it's 18 years actually, uh, minus four. Yeah, so it's, it's less. It's, it's 67 tournaments, and they have won, uh, 59 of them. No, that's not right. Why am I not doing this math right? I literally looked at this earlier. There's, there's like, t- there's 12 that have won by, e- that have been won by everyone else. Sure. And they all have, they have 19, 20, and 20. <laughs> literally every other person <laughs> in the field has 12 <laughs> combined. Yeah. They've all done, every one of them individually has outdone the rest of the field. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. that's a lot. Yeah. And, and outdone them significantly. <laughs> like se- yeah, seven, not by, not by one. Yeah. yeah, like a difference of seven is huge. Seven is how many John McEnroe won in his but, career, was, and he's one of the greatest of all you, time. Yeah, seven gets you into the Hall of Fame. Two, like, two gets yeah. you in the Hall of Fame, unquestionably. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. You, you get what I'm saying, though. Yeah. Like the difference well, is like like full careers that are like considered, you know, some of the greatest of all time, and they're just like, no, that's yeah. the difference between us and the field. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. We're, I like I can't imagine seeing it again. It's going to be weird like watching men's tennis in two or three years when the fields are wide open and you're just like, I have no fucking clue who's going to win. <laughs> like I'm just so used to seeing those three names in the semis and then some other yeah. poor schmuck, you know, sometimes, it, sometimes it was Murray and he was really contending before the injuries for Vrinka randomly, like had a resurgence in his thirties and, and, and like one, one, a few, uh, both Murray and Vrinka both have three. Uh, and then there's, there's six uh, scattered one ofs out there. Um, I can name all of them, but I won't put, Sure. Uh, please, do, please don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's 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 utterly remarkable, and it's I'm 
I'm also like, you've got to be impressed by the longevity of Nadal and Djokovic. Like everyone mm-hmm. expected Nadal to break down early, given the type of tennis he played and the grueling nature of it, of his style of play. And, you know, to his credit, uh, granted he, he withdrew from Wimbledon because of an injury, but, <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's been very effective into his thirties and, and then Novak is just a fucking machine of a, of a human. Just, mm-hmm. I, he's just, he's kind of a robot to me. Like, if you if you literally just built a robot to play tennis, you would build Novak Djokovic. Yeah, <laughs> like it's kind of it's kind of funny, but like I think that just like hits it right on the head. Actually, uh, <clears throat> he's also got that like that robot quality to him, emotionless wise. Like I've seen, like obviously he shows emotion, but like out of the other two, for for me from like seeing from afar, I could be like way wrong on this, but to me, he like definitely had that demeanor at times too. Like he has that maybe it's just like a very focused. Yeah, kind of thing. That's probably a better way to put it than robotish, you know. But Federer can be pretty stoic on on court Same, as well. Yeah, you're right. No, you're definitely right there. No, yeah. Novak ended up has gone through so much of his career knowing that he's the third most popular player. Like Nadal and Federer are just so beloved by tennis fans the world over. And Novak, I think, sort of expected to reach that echelon of popularity once he reached their echelon of play, and it never really happened. And I think he has some some resentment over the years because of that. At least I suspect he does, uh, you know, because he's a human, uh, as, as much as I just called him a robot. Yeah, but sure. It, it's uh, I, I'm. It'll be interesting to see how long they last too. Like that, they're both Novak and Nadal are like 34, something like that. I think they're about five years younger than Federer is. Um, so, like, can they keep it up until, you know, uh, 36, 37 and, and beyond? Because, you know, when when Federer won the 2017 Australian Open, he would have been 35. And so in 2018, he would have been 36. So he won a major at 36, which is probably the second oldest, I would say. I think Ken Rosewall won a major after after 36, but I'm not sure if it was in the Open era. Which is, uh, they, they used to not, these used to be amateur only competitions. If you didn't know, they opened them up to everyone in, in 68 or 69. And, uh, um, you know, you, you would play them when you were younger and then you would go pro and play like exhibition events, whatever. So that they, um, the open air is a sort of dividing line in tennis history. But I think, I think that might be enough about Roger Federer. Yeah. I was, I was getting sad when he kept talking about how like, how much longer they're going to last and they should be over the hill at 34. And here I am about to turn 37. I'm like, man, I'm so old. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Tannen, but you, the time has run out for you to become a professional tennis player. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I always, always worried about that. That's one of the yeah. ones, you know, that I, that's like one of the regrets I'm going to have looking back on my life is that I didn't become a professional tennis player. It's, it's funny. I've played a bunch of different sports in my life. And I think tennis is the one, one of the ones that I had the hardest time grasping even like the basics of, and I was always like okay at everything else, and I was always just like very, very bad at tennis. What you looking up, Ross? Martin Verkirk. I thought may... we were done talking about tennis. Um, hold hold on. We can be done talking about tennis, Ross. It's okay. I feel no. Okay, this is not the guy I was thinking of, but I think it, it might have been. He he lost the O three French Open final to Juan Carlos Ferrero, but I I feel like I remember the coverage from him like him starting late in life, but apparently he didn't just looking at his Wikipedia page. I feel like there was somebody who like started playing tennis, like in their twenties and in their early thirties made some unexpected run in a major. Yeah. Sure. But that's, you're still too late for that. Sorry. All right. Let's talk about magic. <laughs> <laughs> let's look at this top eight of this D and D forgotten realm set. And, uh, I kind of want to say something before we get into it. So when I was doing my top eight, 
you know, you and I joked about like how not powerful this set was overall and how that's kind of a welcome thing, but in a specific way that we wanted like less powerful or less like dominated standards by like one or two things. You know what I mean? Like we wanted a healthier yeah. format, you know, the, 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 the wealth of good cards maybe spread out a little bit better to have like a healthier format. Yeah, like it's not the really... overall power level that's a problem. It's, right. it's the spread of it. Like you can have a more powerful standard format as long as it's balanced. Yeah, and so like looking at this set overall, it feels like the last couple of ones that we've gotten. Right, we look at Strixhaven, you look at uh, Caldheim. Like those sets are not uh, oppressively powerful. I think is the good way to put that. Right, you know, it doesn't like you're not seeing like ultimatums are going to like change the game. You're not seeing stuff like you're seeing out of Throne of Eldraine, where it's like this set had multiple a lot of cards from it banned. And a lot of cards that were just like, you know, format warping in them. And I do think that when the uh, rotation happens, I think this set is sneaky. I almost made the entire set my underrated card for the <laughs> for the set because, like, I do think the set is a, maybe a little bit better than I gave it. It's definitely better than I gave it credit for originally. I, th- for I sure. think it's better than Strixhaven. It's it, Strixhaven's not good. Yeah. And so. Um, and like, I think it has to do a lot with like, I think there's a lot of really good role playing cards in this set, you know, cards that are going to like, you're going to, you're going to be surprised at how many of these cards are going to be like one to four ofs in your deck of like, oh, this was a good sideboard card, or this ended up just being a linchpin in the deck because it needed this effect kind of thing. You know, we'll, we'll maybe even go over some of those cards, see how long it takes to get through our top eight. But I do think there's a lot of good, like uncommons and stuff like that and sideboard cards in the set that are going to show up and constructed quite a bit but let's talk about the standouts and uh i'll go ahead and start out with my number eight and i went pretty safe on my top eight this time i think i'm pr- I'm kind of known for that maybe but uh my eighth place card is one that i do think uh might end up being not safe somewhere and so this one is like got one of i think the highest ceilings and the lowest floors out of all the cards i picked and it's just it's the card wish for everybody at home, it's two and a red, it's a sorcery, and it says you may play a card you own from outside the game this turn. I think when it comes down to wishes, this one is very, it's very distinct, right? All the other ones have a specific thing that you can get, right? You're like, you can get an instant, you can hey, get a sorcery. Not, not Death Wish. Okay, all the played ones. <laughs> Death Wish never... saw vintage play. Okay? Shut up, Ross. <laughs> vintage <laughs> right. play, Tannen. Sure. You're the one that always says it's not a format. Anyway. It was um, back then. It, it was more popular. Like, it was more popular than, than Legacy. Sh- sure, sure. The point I'm trying to make is this card is very different than, say, like, Burning Wish, than, say, Cunning Wish, because you can put those cards into your hand and, like, set up for the next turn to win. The way Wish is worded is you have to play the card this turn, but it doesn't have the restriction of getting an instant or getting a sorcery. You can just get whatever you want out of your sideboard here. So there's a small chance that this card shows up and say like legacy or modern or something somewhere in some of the combo decks. Like I'm looking at the storm decks specifically. If it does, this is a card that would stay around for years. And that archetype, if it just supplants something else and becomes something good, this is a card that you could start seeing as a, a ubiquitous card in those decks for a significant amount of time. Got any comments on wish? I would, I would not play this in like a storm deck i think it's just significantly worse than burning wish at that point since it's a you know mana yeah and and less versatile i think well it's more versatile than what it can grab but less versatile in other ways obviously because of the timing restriction i in terms of legacy I, i i would be a little bit interested in like imperial painter maybe this is a card that that deck could play because you're usually just finding cards that are very cheap or you have like vials in your deck. I don't know, like maybe they can vial, uh, and you're like you wish uh, for 
you know, a card that you immediately vial onto the battlefield is kind of cool. Um, maybe you can even do that in modern uh, to some extent. Then you have some other targets that 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 you want. This is an interesting card to me. Um, it, you know, it's the card that I I, I think actually I think if you described it as safe, I would pro- I would disagree because I think this card at like. No, 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 I did describe it as safe. I said overall my list is pretty safe, and that's okay. why I have this one at eight. Just because, yeah. like, I wanted a card... When I say safe, I meant... I think it was the wrong word to say. It's just, like, that's why I have this at eight. It's, like, my hit-or-miss card. Yeah, this, this to me is a high... Um, um, high, is high is sort of a high-variance card in terms of how it might play it out. I could see this card being completely unplayable, exactly. but, and I could also see this card being a staple. Yeah, if I was, like, more, you know, sure of myself, I would have it at, like, four or something, or three. You know, I'd yeah. be like, no, I think this card is good, and it's going to get, you know... Like, remember how aggressive I was of expressive iteration on my list? I'm like, this is the best card in the set, hands down. You yeah. know, I was, like, I was like very firm at being this is the number one card. All right, so what's your number eight? My number eight is a Treasure Vault. Okay, interesting. All right. This is, this is one of uh, the newest artifact land. It taps for a colorless, and you can pay X and... XX tap and sacrifice it to create X treasure tokens. I just realized it was an artifact land, by the way. I had no yes. idea. You know, basically every single artifact land that enters untapped has seen play. This one, you know, obviously not indestructible like Darksteel Citadel, which can sometimes be relevant. But what can also be relevant is like making treasure tokens when you're flooded late in the game. So I expect it to show up. Uh, you know, sometimes decks will even want more than, you know, four artifact lands if they're in modern decks that exist, you know, maybe in Pioneer in the like, uh, like in Soul decks or even in, 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 you know, in historic where I'm not, do they even have any artifact lands in historic? No one knows. Uh, you know, I think so, Citadel might randomly be in it actually. Yeah, I'm not sure, sure though. <laughs> but artifact lands generally see play. And it, as far as standard goes, I can also see this as a sort of, um, in the same role that storage lands used to play in control decks, where you would you would sort of build up this mana advantage to win the counter war in one big turn, this doesn't build up slowly. It's not nearly as good as those lands, but you can se- I think you can set up a turn where like you sacrifice this on the end step for two, maybe even three treasure tokens, and get a little bit of a boost of mana to make sure that you're gonna win that that key counter war, and that can be really really helpful. Uh, so, you know, and there's definitely space for that, that kind of utility in control decks. So I can see Treasure Vault playing a lot of different roles across a lot of different formats. If whether it fits in, into all of them, is, you know, that's unlikely, but I assume it will fit into some of them. And so, uh, that's why it comes in at eighth. Yep. All right. Good call. I, again, I'm actually, when you said Artifact Land, I literally, I don't know if you can hear me scrolling. I went to my <laughs> spoiler pull up. I was like, what's this is Artifact Land? All right. Yeah. So how much I've been reading. All right. Number seven for me is a portable hole and i'm not excited about putting this on my top eight because this is another card i think that might actually just be overrated by people but if there are good aggressive decks in this format which i feel like this might be the thing that happens when we start moving out you know throne of eldraine and those kinds of things uh cards that are like small creatures become definitely more playable you don't have stomp running around as much uh the white and red based aggro decks might be pretty good and if you're a deck that's looking like i can see this being a four of in like the sideboard of a white weenie deck, if that deck is very good, because it like helps win the mirror. And then if like there's a red deck that's aggressive or a black deck that's aggressive, it's good. Um, 
It also exiles the non-land permanent, which is sweet. And it's not just creatures, right? It says non-land permanent with two or yeah. less. So it does kill some some hate cards here or there. And then uh, exiling could be big too if there's you know anything in this format that gets value derived earlier. Like um, there's some black creatures always that you know come back from the graveyard. You know you're looking at like your two ones for one. There's one in the set that does it too. Even though I don't think that one will be constructed because it has to do with uh, completing dungeons. You know, and I don't think that's a thing that's going to happen. And I do think that. In the right spot, in the right deck as a thing, this this could show up in, like, an eternal format as, like, a sideboard card where, like, you know, uh, like, I, like, I think about this card as a card for, like, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but, like, think about this card for, like, you know, death and taxes in Legacy, right? Or in, uh, or in, uh, Modern, where this card kills a lot of creatures that are super relevant in the format and that are very good, but also kills like hate cards, good stuff in the opposing thing, like in the mirror, it kills a lot of their creatures plus their aether vials, kind of stuff like that too. And generally the decks can't kill this coming out of the sideboard or like, like if I'm a Delver deck and my opponent portable holes my uh, Delver of Secrets, like I'm not going to braid this when they have like Batter Skull in their deck. You know what I mean? I'm going to save that for a better target or for like a creature or something. So I think this is a card that could see a lot of play across a lot of formats. It could just be a miss. So that's why I have it kind of higher on my list. Uh, I'm probably a little bit higher on this card than you, though I'm I was much higher on it when it was first revealed because I thought that non-land permanent clause and hitting Renin Six was going to make it very attractive in modern, and then Modern Horizons brought us Prismatic Ending. Yep, and yeah. it, in general, I I would say Prismatic Ending is a better card, though I could still see Portable Hole seeing play in mono white decks. You know, if your if your Taxes deck needs another cheap removal spell for the sideboard, or your uh, mono white Hammer deck. You know, which is exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, which is seeing a lot of play right now. Portable um, Hole could be a, a better option than Prismatic Ending in those decks. I do think the card's a little bit overrated as a standard removal spell, like a, yes, I think it's that's worse than Glass Casket, for example. But still, a solid sideboard card. I expect it to see play there. Uh, I I agree with you. I think it's gonna it can see play across a wide range of formats. It's gonna be more of a sideboard card, but it'll be a very very good one. Um, so uh, you know. It's, I think it's just a solid card. Yeah, it being an artifact can be relevant some places too, right? You know, like you, if if I'm just thinking other formats, like you know, a good removal spell that also can count. You know, you can tap this for blue mana with Urza and some yeah. other cool counts things for going all on. that glitters in like yeah. an aggro deck. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, in historic, there's the black white, uh, the black white, you know, auras deck. This would be good. And the, and there was one thing that I was thinking about this earlier, and you made me think about it. Um, when I see this card. De- depending on the format, I think it's just prismatic ending number five. <laughs> like, so, you, yeah. you know, because you were talking about how it's just not as good as that card. So that's why it's a little higher on my list. I'm assuming you also have it on your list. So we'll see. But what is your number seven? My number seven is Flame Skull. Ooh, I like that one. It is a one red, red, three, one skeleton creature with flying. It can't block and has whenever Flame Skull dies, exile it. If you do, exile the top card of your library. Until the end of your next turn, you may play one of those cards. Uh, you know, very aggressive body that gives you a little bit of value when it dies. Uh, so against control decks, it should be very good. I don't think this card is... This is going to be a pretty poor card in aggro matchups because it can't block. If you could block with it and just force those trades and grind value, it would be significantly better. Um, but even with the inability to block, I think it's just a, an incredibly effective card in control matchups. So... In, in my estimation, that makes it a, a very good sideboard card. I think it's going to be uh, overlooked early on because the sideboard cards you need right now in that role are all escape cards against rogues. 
Um, and so I think after rotation, this card will shine in red decks, at the very least in the sideboard. And right after rotation, when the format is small, like maybe this is just the best option and, and you, it sees play in main decks. Not that that's a bad thing. I think it's, it's a fine card to main deck in, in a very, very aggressive red deck. Um, but it just seems like it slots in so easily there. Uh, and, and even in more aggressive sacrifice decks, I could see this card seeing play. So, um, I think that, you know, while I don't think this card is ever going to become, you know, a format powerhouse, it just had such an easy defined role, very safe card to put up there. I think it's going to show up, you know, basically in standard red decks. Mm-hmm. And so that was number your, your number seven, correct? Yes. All right. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk about this card a little more later. How about that? Uh, as for my number six, uh, a a card that I I think again is going to shine post rotation and one of my favorite cards in the set, mostly because of its name and its creature type. And that is frog hemoth. Before you keep going with that, I need to let you know, Tannen, that, uh, you have to put a quarter in the jar every time you mention a card being better after rotation. That's, that's what we do on versus live. I own the jar like twenty seven dollars by now. Yeah, so sure. I'm just just letting you know. We'll we'll keep track of it and send you a bill. Okay, sure, sure. Uh, I will literally mail you the quarters. All right, <laughs> uh, which will which will cost more money once they start go the amount that I have to put in there. All right. Yeah. So uh, frog hemoth. Uh, it's a creature. It's a frog horror. Love it. Uh, three blue blue for four four trample on haste. When it deals combat damage to a player, exile up to that many cards from their graveyard. Put a plus one plus one counter on frog hemoth for each creature card exiled this way, and you gain one life for each non creature card exile this way um big dumb idiot with trample and haste for its mana uh four four for five a little low but you get all these extra abilities right so uh very good card for green decks to attack planeswalkers with very good card uh to attack with after whatever form of wrath they use against you you know board sweep so it's it's costed at the right amount there right being five mana attacks you know four and five mana planeswalkers well uh, you know you kind of curve into you know the turn after your opponent casts their sweeper you know, kind of thing here. Plus, it's got some insulary uh, graveyard hate, which is nice. And the fact that uh, it has trample is really big here because it has ill damage to uh, a player to get through. So in a lot of the decks that you want to, especially lately in standard, where you want to exile stuff from the graveyard, they have little pesky blockers sitting around, right? Yeah, you know, these especially little, those Rakdos decks. Yeah, these little bodies sitting around. So now, like, they're not going to block very well versus this anyway. And then the gaining life can be really relevant in some matchups, too. Like, can you can you guess, like, think about a red deck? You know, they find, like, tap out or, like, put a good spot. And you're like, all right, slam this thing, attack you. Like, exile three spells from your grave or gain three life. And, like, that's huge on the, on the race, you know? So a card that can definitely just get out of control in a lot of different spots. Uh, I think this one's going to be a sneaky good card out of the set. Yeah, I, I would say this was probably card nine on my list. So the, the sort of just last card cut. Um, I, I like it for all the reasons you mentioned. I have a couple reservations about it that kept it off of the top eight. One is um, I think the abilities are awkwardly divided. Like it, okay. you want you want to be gaining life against aggro decks who mostly are going to have creatures in their creatures, graveyard yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. pumping it against control decks who mostly have spells. So if that if that was reversed, I think the card would get significantly better. Um, and See, I disagree. I like that because it's not just inherently broken. You know, it's not just like absurdly like that would be too easy, in my opinion. Sure. Well, yeah. I'm just talking about you know putting of the course, card the high on the it, list. You know, yeah, the way, the way it is. No, no, no. I agree with you. I hundred yeah. percent agree with you. But I'm saying if 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 it was templated the other way around, I think this card would be like like in the top three, probably. Like wow. I think it'd be. 
Uh, it was just templated perfectly, is what I'm saying. You know, like sure. exactly what you wanted to do. Kind of yeah. Thing. And then the um, my other issue with it is is that you don't get the trigger when you're attacking planeswalkers, and I want these kind yeah, of four, true. five, six mana haste threats to you, you know, like part of their role is attacking planeswalkers, and so you, that like you know again in designing it, that tension is often good. Now you have a real decision to make, and a lot of design work is about giving your your players interesting decisions. Uh, but in terms of just the power level of the card, you want to have your cake and eat it too. And in this case, you know, you you, you don't get to do that. So the uh, those, those are minor things. I do think the card is solid. Um, I know I expect it to show up in certain points, uh, especially because you know Mono Green looks to be getting some other uh, good tools that we'll talk about later. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, and, we and this will. card de- definitely slots you know into that kind of deck pretty well, as as well as into other decks. You know, it's easy for multicolor decks to play a, a green green five drop. So. Um, you know, v- very close to making it on my list, but just barely missed the cut. But definitely a solid card. All right. So, what's your number six? My number six is Portable Hole. So I was pretty close to you on on that one. Uh, only one spot ahead. Uh, okay. And so we've already talked about that, and we can sure. keep going. Yeah. So we can go to, into my number five, and this is this is one of the ones that I wasn't so sure of, but I, I do think this card reads really, really powerful. And my number five is uh, Ebon Death Draco Lich. And so for everybody at home, this one is two black, black for a five, two flash flying legendary zombie dragon. Um, it enters the battlefield tapped, which kind of makes sense. You know, it's, it's a, it's a five, two of flash and flying for four mana. Like there needs to be some drawback here. Um, but it says that you can cast, uh, Ebon Death from your graveyard. If a creature not named Ebon Death died this turn. Uh, I think this is one of those cards that you, if it if the right home comes up, this is going to be like a four of or a three of in those decks, and you're going to be casting it from the graveyard quite a bit. Um, it makes blocking really hard on your opponent because if you have one of these in the graveyard and you attack them, like they can't trade, they they can't chump. Like you're just going to get a, fi- a free five two out of the graveyard, and that's on every turn too. Since it has flash, like you could, you do it on your own turn, you could do it on theirs, and stuff like that. So like, I think this card's great. And five power for four mana flash flyer is a lot. So attacking planeswalkers and stuff is going to be really good too. Yeah, uh, I'm. I think I'm. I'm lower on this card than than other other people. I think you know. I at least right now I see four mana two toughness. Like you fail the stomp test as hard as possible. Um, but obviously that's only a couple months. Like let, we we want to be a little bit more forward thinking than that. But I see a four mana creature that does nothing to help stabilize the battlefield. Which makes it really difficult, I think, to play against aggressive decks. But then when you look at that ability to be able to cast it from the graveyard, well, that part is not going to be relevant against control decks. So then you just have this sort of, like, yeah, it's a, it's a good pressure flash threat, but one that is very easy for control decks to answer. So I see a card that has a lot of words on it. And when you, when you imagine in your head all of the words working, like the entire text box, the card firing on all cylinders, then it's it looks great. But when I look at it, I see a card that you're ne- you're never going to realize that, or very rarely going to realize that. I think the card is going to play a lot worse than it reads, um, because it like it's not it's just not an internally synergistic card with how it does it. Like it wants to be an aggressive threat and just kind of kill the opponent, and but it also wants you to be kind of reactive. So, like, maybe it's, like, a win condition in a control deck. And so, you know, it's easy to... Because it's only four mana, it's easy to... You know, you're not playing it on turn four unless your opponent taps out. It gives you the window. But you're instead, like, playing it on turn six, seven, and eight when you can protect it. And you're just killing your opponent with that. 
and then against aggro decks, like you're, you know, finding a window to cast it after your sweeper while, you know, they recover and either using it to continue to play defense or, you know, they try to kill it and you just kill their creature with a removal spell and recast it kind of thing. That's where I can kind of see it working. But even then, like, I think it's going to be hard to find that window to get this card onto the battlefield safely against a creature deck without, um, before the sort of game has already been decided, before you've already taken full control of the game, at which point its recursive ability doesn't really matter. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty low. I'm pretty low on this card, at least relative to where I've seen it with other people. I know it was in PV's article this week about cards he thinks will impact historic. Um, and you know, while it was the one he was least confident in, uh, if you read the article, like that, that really surprised me because I kind of just passed over this card without much of a second thought. Um, but you know, I, I guess I'm in the minority there. All right. Well then what's your number five? <laughs> Things are getting very contentious now. No, no, I don't care. <laughs> My number five is burning hands. Okay. Yeah. I like this one a lot. This is one that, um, I left off of um, my list, but I do think this card is very, very good. I kind of like was going to, I'll let you talk about this in a second. Sorry, I'm yeah, kind of stealing your thing here. Call us in a red instant. It deals two damage to target creature or planeswalker. If that permanent is green, Burning Hands deals six damage instead. So I, I just think about the days when Fry was legal and all the cards like that red needed to kill but couldn't were Oko that plus two to up to six loyalty when they made a food token or Uro that was a six six and you just looked at Fry and it was awful but all the other colors got insane color hoses it was like Ether Gust Noxious Grasp and and Autumn or Veil of Summer and Fry was just it was so sad how bad Fry was because it was just always one short of killing everything cool. And, and, and red decks have since been, you know, even after those cards have been banned, subject to Lovestruck Beast. And I'm like, it's just been a rough go because Lovestruck Beast is so good. And yeah, like they've got the Crone War. Sometimes you can play the, that three mana card that's like, that does five damage to a creature or planeswalker. But yeah, Soul Seer. But you're just not happy to do things like that. Burning Hands is the answer that they have needed for a million months for Lovestruck Beast and Elder Gargaroth, for that matter. And I'm sure it's going to be incredibly popular for red decks to play until rotation. Uh, and I'm sure um, um, uh, Brandon Burton is is very excited when he saw yeah, this card. Sa- Sandy Dog. Yeah, Sa- Sandy Dog is going to love this one. Um, but to me, what makes it so exciting is that two mana, two damage to a creature or a planeswalker, like, that's not that bad. You could main no, deck this not. card if you needed yeah. to, if you had a very green heavy metagame. And like, even after rotation in green heavy metagames, you can main deck this card. And you have this, you know, cheap removal spell in other matchups. And yeah, you'll board it out. But you have this incredible tool against green decks for uh, for red. And it's something that they've been missing for so long. So I actually think, it, you know, it's going to have a huge impact for these next two months. Like it could really upset the balance of standard towards red decks. Um, so I, I've got to agree with you overall. I think this card is great. Um, I liked it a lot. It's 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 like my number nine, as you said earlier, while it was originally like on my list. Um, I do think this is a card that, like you said, depending on the metagames, I think you could play four of these main. And if like it's just killing enough of the creatures in the format, and then there's a green deck that it's relevant against, and then you know, the fact that it can still hit Planeswalkers against the control decks like means that it's not just dead in those games. Like absolutely love it you know i think this card is very very good like you said it's a very very good color hoser 
you know, that, that, cause most of the color coasters are only good against that color, right? And this one is good enough against the other decks that I think this is just a very good card. And this one was kind of like what I alluded to when I talked about like the beginning of the set that I think this one is going to, this set's going to have a couple cards, like surprise you at how much you play them. Some of the uncommons and stuff in the set. And this one's not flashy, right? It's not a big mythic. It doesn't have, you know, 18 lines of text. It's not going to cost $30, but this is a card that you're going to want to get four of and keep it in your collection because if you're playing paper and you play red decks, you're going to need four of this at some point in time. Yeah, and, and, and that even goes for, you know, older formats. Like, people are playing Lovestruck Beast in, you know, Historic um, a little, uh, I think they're in certain decks. Yeah. Aren't they playing, like, the Green White Company deck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard people mention this in Modern, and, like, I'm not seeing that. That's at, at two mana, I mean, I think it's too much, but... It is a two mana red card that kills both um, Dryad of the Elysian Grove and Primeval Titan, yeah. That said, we now have a one-mana red card that does that in Unholy Heat. But if you have a red deck in Modern that can't somehow hit Delirium uh, reliably, um, which, you know, they basically all can because Dragon's Rage Channel is the nut and Mishra's Bauble is broken, uh, then, yeah, I, I could see this card in that kind of deck sideboard. Uh, and if you if we get to a point where Mishra's Bauble gets banned, then, yeah, I would look to this card as a way to answer those... T- the, those those cards out of the amulet deck. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, what card was that for you? That was five? Yeah, that was five. So we're on to mine number four, correct? Yes, that's how that works. All right. So mine number four, I'll talk about it just a second because you've already had it. I have uh, Flame Skull at number four. I think this card is going to be very good. Uh, here comes the quarter. Very good post-rotation. Um, I think this is going to be a slam dunk four of in any of the red aggressive decks and possibly in some, if there's like a multicolored, you know, mid-range creature deck like i could see p- people having a bunch of these in your sideboard for the matchup where like if your opponent's just killing everything you do you know if you're playing against sweepers or you're playing against you know just a you know blue black control deck that's just got like you know 17 one for ones or whatever and i think this card is very good uh very well very well templated and the fact that it just keeps coming back for me that's that's the big thing um and it doesn't die to like graveyard hate like a lot of cards like you know i think of like i, I kind of compare this to chandra's phoenix from back in the day, you know, the three mana flying creature that that recurs itself. Yeah, when you dealt damage to them with a with a non creature. It comes back. Yeah. yeah, but but the thing is, the card sits in your graveyard, right? And this one doesn't do that. So this one doesn't fold to some of the same cards in the past that have like plagued this kind of card before. Yeah, it's it's not gonna uh, get exiled ever by um, scavenging ooze, like anything well, like that. Sca- yeah. you, no, you can definitely hit it with scavenging ooze. That's the one of the oh, ones when that it does dies, exile it. Sure, sure. I thought yeah, it just got, went to exile because it has the intervening yeah. if clause. If you do, but they, sure. they need something that they can. Re- they need to be able to respond to the trigger. They need an instant yeah. speed way to interact yeah. with the graveyard. So Frog Hemoth is never going to hit this card. Yeah, exactly. uh, you know, for example, or. Um, uh, Elspeth's Nightmare would never hit this card. Yeah, good point. Because that only yeah. happens on their turn. So there's there and you know there's definitely you know a good amount of things like that. But the scavenging news is like the, the one that does tag it. All right, what's your number four? My number four is Imrith Desert Doom. Uh, we already had Ebon Death on your list. This is the blue dragon in that cycle. So it's a three blue blue five five legendary creature dragon has flying. It says Ward four as long as it's untapped. And whenever it deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. Then if you have fewer than three cards in hand, draw cards equal to the difference. So very much a throwback to Dragonlord Ojitai. Uh, if you remember that card back in the day, which was a staple across many decks in Standard. I remember people even trying to play it in Modern with Minamo <laughs> at that time <laughs> in like Just Guy Control. Um, and Imrith, you know, 
but very similar. I think a little bit less powerful, um, though the fifth point of toughness is certainly relevant. Uh, just drawing a card as opposed to looking at the top three, uh, that's it. That's a huge difference. I don't think there's a huge difference between Ward 4 and, uh, you know, Hexproof. Shroud or Hexproof. Heck, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of a difference, but not, not a huge one. Um, and, you know, sometimes with this card, you're going to be able to draw two, maybe even three cards with it, which is, uh, which is really cool. So I, I played with this actually on Versus this week, and it was solid, though I realized that, um, you, I think you need to play towards or build towards that ability a little bit more and really lower the curve of your deck. Uh, you still want to be, um, you still want to be disruptive, but you want to play more proactive disruption. Like I think this card plays really well with the discard spells. Um, you know, I think, you, you know, control deck that main decks duress, Imbrith would, would slot very well in that's a little bit more proactive. Uh, maybe has some, you know, other cheap creatures that plays out more like a mid range deck even. Um, but just a really powerful card in that kind of kind of deck. It also comes down if you're on the play and just colds Goldspan Dragon, which is really That's nice. A po- That's a good point. Um, yeah, so I, I just really, really good stats here and has that pedigree where we knew Dragonlord Ojutai is really, really good. I think this card is a little bit worse, though it's also a mono blue card. So Ojutai was blue and white, was harder to fit into certain decks. I think this card, you know, would fit into an Izzet or a Demure Shell pretty well. Um, and, and, you know, it, it'll, I think it'll take some time to get there because I don't think this is, a, I don't think there's really a, a good home for it in the current standard. But again, a post rotation, I'll put my quarter in. Uh, <laughs> I expect this card to be around and be around, um, and be, be very good, especially right after post rotation when there's only four sets or whatever. Uh, you know, Ojitai came around pretty late in the, in a standard format and was really good in the spring and summer. Uh, you know, this card should be, I think, similarly powerful. More on this one from me later. All right. Uh, <laughs> my number three, Werewolf Pack Leader. I like this card a lot. This yeah, is, uh, th- this green... is my, oh, this is my number three as well. So, okay. So we'll just, just talk we... about it together. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. This is a green, green human werewolf that, that is a three, three. Uh, whenever pack leader attacks, if you attacked with creatures of total power six or greater this turn or this combat, draw a card, and then has an ability of three and a green until end of turn. Uh, it has base power and toughness five uh, five three gains trample, and it isn't a human. Um, just a very very good card, right? We've seen generic three three for green green be playable in the past in mono green you know aggro decks, and this one just takes it a step further with two very relevant abilities. The fact that if you get to draw cards with this, I don't see you generally losing that game because you're also attacking with a lot of power into your opponent. And then the ability is relevant later in the game to just to have a bigger body that also has trample. So like you can't really chump block this as well in games and stuff too. So big fan of this. Um, I've always found that in the green aggro decks, the like the most important cards to me have always been like, are the one and two drops good enough? Because the three, four, and five drops, or the four and five drops, there's always some green creature that's big enough and good enough to end the game. Yeah, and in this case, there's a lot of them that have haste. You know, mm-hmm. uh, questing beast now frog hemoth, um, and um, the one we were just talking about frog yeah. hemoth, yeah, and then and gem razor that is sort of like virtual haste, right? If you had a one drop, so there's a lot of curves where you start drawing cards either on turn three or turn four with this, which you normally would think like might take a little bit more time to set up. It plays really really well with primal might. You know, you can play one drop pack leader, then primal might their creature on turn three and attack for six. That's and, really good. And yeah. draw a card. It, it takes very little to start drawing cards with this. Less than I thought. I've played with this a, a little bit. 
I haven't, I don't think I've yet, I've yet to activate that second ability, but just green, green, three, three with the pack tactics trigger was more than good enough. Yeah. Um, I expect that, you know, mono green aggro is around right now in standard. Uh, and I expect a mono green aggro list to also be around after rotation. And this will be a, a key part of it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I guess we'll move on to my number two here. And uh, this is my vote for highest variance card in the set. This card is either busted or is like unplayable. That's Dimmy Lich. Uh, so for everybody at home, it's blue, 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 blue. You heard that correct. Four blue for a four, three skeleton wizard. This spell costs blue less to cast for each instant or sorcery spell you've cast this turn. Whenever it attacks, exile up to one target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard, copy it. You may cast the copy. You may cast uh, this from this, this creature from your graveyard by exhaling four instant and or sorcery cards from your graveyard in addition to paying its other costs. So that is a lot of text, Ross, on a card. Like a lot. Yeah. Um, you're always kind of scared of cards that uh, have some way to make themselves cheaper, right? You know, this costs and, less for this. And right? in particular, if it ends with it potentially being free. You know, yes. anything that says, like, reduce, and it can't re be reduced past a certain point, or it can only reduce so many times, like, you know, when it gets to free, that's when you things start getting degenerate. Yeah. So, like, you know, you think of things like opt in standard. I don't know if there's enough in standard to kind of, like, churn through this, but it does lead to some pretty big turns. We're going to be, like, opt into something, into Dimulich, because it's too cheaper now, and I have two mana left over kind of things. When I think of stuff like modern, you have a lot of other stuff, right? You have like free spells, you have like mana morphos, which technically is a free spell if you have mana. The thing for here is I don't I've seen people talk about playing this in like the blue red prowess, you know, iteration decks, and I don't see it because I think those decks are already really well made and you don't need this card to continue to win or whatever. Like maybe there's some matchups where like this is a card you want out of your sideboard. It dies to all the removal spells in modern, it just dies to bolt and all the other stuff. But also, like you already have Stormwing Entity, right? which is, like, easier to make happen than this and making it, you know, a cheaper big threat kind of thing. And it gets an instant... Uh, I mean, like, you, you immediately get something from each of them while, while this one gets to cast an instant structure card from your graveyard uh, if it, it attacks. But with Entity, you get to scry immediately when it comes into play. So, like, there's the, the thing there, and, like, I just don't think this card ever really gets to attack in a lot of those formats unless you're, like, super far ahead or, like, your opponent's, like, gonna kill you in the next turn and whatever you do doesn't matter. So, um... I do think people are going to try to make this card happen quite a bit. Like, this is going to be one of the chase rares in the set. Um, it's very powerful. It reads very powerful. Um, I don't know where you have it on your list or if you do it all. What are your thoughts? Uh, I agree. It's certainly the most hyped card in the set. I think people are mis-evaluating what it does. I, I agree with you. I don't think it's a card that slots into these aggressive prowess decks. I think this is a card that slots into more control decks that are filled with cantrips and cheap removal. That way you're taking advantage of the fact that you can keep casting it from your graveyard. So the fact that it's dying to Lightning Bolt isn't that big of a deal because it keeps keeps coming back. Um, and I also kind of like how it plays w with other copies of it where they give you free spells to make the, the later ones cheaper. So if it were Legendary, I think that would be a, a pretty big strike on it, but it isn't. Um, so I think you, it's pretty easy to incorporate some cheap cantrips into your control deck, maybe even up to Manamorphose, so you can, you know, fix your mana to be casting it, um, and just use this as a win condition so that you're able to actually play a more proactive game when you need to, but you can also play a, a reactive game 
uh, you know, with a bunch of cheap removal and, and ops and thought scours and things like that. So that, that's where I'd be looking to utilize the card. And I think it's very powerful in that respect. And I think people will figure out how to maximize it. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't take much to make me want to play thought scour. So like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in, um, just like to me, a lot of the cards that you want to play alongside cards like this too, kind of don't necessarily work well with it. Like you kind of want to play it in like maybe decks that have snapcasters, maybe decks that have murktide regents or, you know, stuff like that. I'm like, these are kind of defeating kind of what this is kind of doing. So like you said, I think we haven't figured out the right hundred percent right shell for that. I think that's, what's going to be important. If someone figures it out, this card is going to be very good. It's going to be very powerful. And I will cast the hell out of this card a lot. Cause this is, this is my kind of magic card. All right. Yeah. What's up with you? I think you're number two, right? Uh, keep in mind that it's also sure. pretty cool with Finale of Promise, where you like cast Finale Ooh. and then this costs one mana. Ooh, okay, I kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, so my number two is the Fast Creature Lands. Okay. Uh, I, I, like I included it. them as a cycle. Sure. Um, so uh, I I will say that I think the red one is pretty easily the best of the of the five. Can I interrupt uh, you for two seconds? Yeah. This is this is my number one. Okay. Uh, yeah, den, the, den den of the bugbear. Um, so, you know, uh, I think that's pr- pretty easily the best of them because they they all t- lend more towards aggressive decks. Where you know uh, your curve stops earlier and they're gonna uh, enter untapped. I guess they're gonna enter untapped about the same amount of time, regardless of decks. But like, you know, um, y- you're you're not gonna play them as often in control decks where you know they're going to enter tapped on like turn three or four when you have to cast your sweeper i think aggro decks can can mitigate that a little bit more especially if you build your curve really uh like very low uh and you're helped out if you have a low curve because this gives you something to do with your mana moving forward but you know i've the green one and the blue one i've i've played with um you know they've all been relevant uh and they're just you know they're just solid lance and you know magic is about mana so lands always see play (laughs) Yeah, exactly, and I, I think these are going to be. I, I actually almost had these as my number one and my underrated card for the set because I do feel like some people are just kind of like meh on them, and I'm like, these are going to be very good. Like almost every one of them is going to be good. You know, I think it's, I think it's, I think they're really cool. Um, like they, they fit really well into aggressive shells and then some, like some mid range shells as well. You know, and like I think people undervalue how important it is to have creature lands that also produce you know, mana and can still help you have like curve out early in the game that don't just come into play tapped every yeah. turn. The, the the awkward thing is when you look at them, I, I think you're trying to, you always think to slot them more into monocolored aggro decks. And in those decks, I, th- I think Faceless Haven is going to be better, but these are going to work much better in multicolored decks. Like you said, in, in mid-range decks, even in control decks in the case of the blue one. Um, and they're fine in small numbers in those kinds of decks, you know, and they're going to be quite solid. So even if the monocolored aggro decks stick with Faceless Haven, and there's no guarantee that they do, like they might decide they, they'd rather have more colored mana depending upon their, their requirements, or they just you know want to play more other utility lands like modal double face cards or, or whatever if we see more utility lands printed later on, and they just don't have room to play as many snow lands to make Faceless Haven good. You know, the, the, even if these are proved to be slightly worse, they might open up your deck building enough to make them worth it. Um, so yeah, just, you know, they're just good cards. <laughs> yeah. All right. So what was your number one then? 
My my number one is Demilich. So okay. I, I'm I'm giving it a little just bit to, pure, to peer pressure on that one. But is it just on pure power level too? I mean, like obviously yeah, it's like, definitely it's has probably, the highest potential. Like yeah. you know, it, it's the card that if I didn't have first, I could potentially really regret it. So I'm not my, I'm not in love with having it number one. Um, because I agree with you. I think it's it's going to be a high variance card. Uh, but you know the uh, the the potential is definitely theirs and it's a pretty underpowered set. So in this case, I, I just went with the potential. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense actually. All right. Do you want to do underrated or overrated first? Well, let's do overrated first. You want to do overrated? All right. Do you want me to go first? Cause mine's kind of funny. Uh, sure. So I think you may have remembered earlier when you're talking about one of your cards that was higher on your list. And I said more for me, more for me later, but it's not actually in my top eight. And that is Emerith desert doom. I actually just don't see it with this card. Obviously, this card reads really well, right? Looks very powerful, blah, blah, blah. But I think people forget. And, like, okay, I didn't think Dragonlord Orzai was as good as people thought it was. You know what I mean? I always thought it was, like, I thought it was overrated. And so when I see people comparing that card or thinking it's going to be this, like, slam dunk finisher and control decks, I just don't agree. I think it's, yeah, it could happen. We'll see what happens with all these sets. I'd much rather have a Planeswalker than this card if there's a good enough Planeswalker in my finishing slot. And... I don't like tapping out for creatures that don't immediately affect the board and stuff like that. Like the fact that it has ward is, is great, right? Like you can block well with this. Like you said, I think that's a big deal that I didn't really think about. Is this a better blocker than I thought it yeah. was. But also when you had Dragonlord Orchidai in your deck, there was a specific reason why you also had the card besides the fact that it was a decently read, you know, decent magic card. the fact that you had Slumgar Scorn, you had the Foul Tongue uh, Invocation. Whatever invocation and like all the other cards that mattered for dragon stuff right you also had like crux of fate right around the same amount of time right yeah well the, the but the bant decks that played ojutai didn't have any of those cards right i'm just saying granted, there, there was, granted there they were more... just ramping into it which is also good yeah and like yeah yeah if you're ramping into it on like you know turn four and you're like constantly playing all this other big stuff like that card's great right like it's a card you can't kill might get you some cards back you're casting it ahead of time so like that's better right this isn't a card that i'm like utterly excited about casting in my control deck so like i don't know I, I think i could be wrong but i think i'm against most of the masses of people who are like this is a slam dunk this 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 and it's it's dragon low or to die 2.0 i get the you know we always make comparisons right you think about it in sports or like this is a young michael jordan this is a young kobe bryant like whatever right you know we compare it to other things because that's our our realm of you know that's that's where our base of knowledge comes from like the things that we have as a as a this this is a set thing in our mind like we know what we have with this, right? So we compare it, and I'm not seeing it as much with this card. So I think, to me, this is the overrated card for me. I, I think you make a really good point on Silamangar Scorn being a really big part of what made those dragons good. Is having then access to you know actual counter spell. Yeah, um, was a big part of it. That's definitely something I overlooked. Um, so uh, I, you know, I'm I'm still high on the card, but uh, I think that was a strong point. I would ask you though, would you rather, and you know, in a typical, you know. Removal spell, counter spell, control deck. Would you rather be casting this as your win condition or Morden Kanan, the blue planeswalker? Hmm. I think that card kind of sucks. So probably. Okay. So probably you just don't like Morden Kanan at all? I think uh, Morden Kanan is like a, an okay card that is like will occasionally be like a one of in control decks. It costs six. It's so much. But yeah. Um, if it was okay. So if it was a planeswalker that could immediately garner value, right? You know, and I'm not saying specifically this one, but think of all the Jaces, think of all the Teferis. You know, immediately garner some kind of value and immediately needs an answer from your opponent. This is something that I'm more likely okay with uh, slamming in a control mirror because I'm less worried about what my opponent's going to cast the turn after that. If I were to play uh, this card, 
I'm a little more worried about my opponent casting something big and ridiculous in the next turn that maybe this card either doesn't attack well or doesn't kill or they probably still have a lot of ways to kill this though, right? Like if they have any kind of sweepers or anything that makes you sacrifice creatures, which there are some in this set and I think we're going to be seeing those cards get played, then like this card just dies to it. But to answer your question, yeah, I would much rather the Emirate Desert Doom. I just wouldn't be super excited about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Sorry uh, for the long-winded answer to a simple question. No, you're you're good. I, I like it. I've given plenty of those, Tannen. You you you're you have a, a huge quota that you're able to yeah, fill up whenever you want. Uh, right, so, so which is, what is your overrated? I, I was going to give a cheeky answer to this question and say nothing because I've just seen so little chatter about the <laughs> okay, set. I like it. I like it. Um, <laughs> like, it, everybody's just still f- having fun with Modern Horizons two, sure. and nobody wants sure. to touch Standard until rotation anyway. So this might be like the least. Ex, uh, like heralded preview season in the history of magic like yeah everyone's just like yeah i'll look at it in a couple months like let me it's modern summer that's what we're, that's what we're doing and once rotation happens and we're done with throne and standard then we'll go back and look at all the standard cards and we'll see which ones are good and th- that's what i so it's hard to get a sense for what cards are overrated if there's no rating happening yeah, sure. um <laughs> that said after the discussion we had earlier i think i'm gonna just go with even death dracolich because okay. I have heard I things like about this. It was in PB's article, so he's thinking about it even in Historic, uh, and I was much lower on it than you are. So to, just based on the small sample, I'll go with with, uh, with the Black Dragon as my overrated card for the sure. reasons I stated earlier. So I'm gonna we're, we're going to let you go first for underrated, too, because since I've gone first every time. Okay, my underrated card is Shambling Ghast. This is black for a 1-1 I'm scrolling to find, I believe it's a zombie, but I didn't write write that down. Um, and, and that is important it's, uh, if it is. But it, it's black for a 1-1, one, one, and when it dies, you choose one. You can either give target creature minus one, minus one until end of turn, or create a treasure token. Uh, it is a zombie. Uh, and it's target creature and opponent control, so you, you can't target your own creature in case you wanted to do that. You can't get blown out by it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I... I generally think, like, you know, when you're when you're building sacrifice decks, which I've done a lot of over the last year or two, um, one of the key things is keeping your curve really low. Because sacrifice decks have a lot of different pieces. There's the sacrifice outlets, the sacrifice fodder, and the sacrifice payoffs. And you need to get them all onto the battlefield as quickly as possible. And that's a difficult thing to do, Um you know, unless your curve is very low. So I always am trying to lower the curve in my sacrifice decks. I also think that tends to make sense because I want to be aggressive and put my opponent on the back foot and force them to use their removal awkwardly because that usually puts you in good position to either uh, sneak through your key cards and have them not get uh, get answered or you get to then leverage your recursive threats that you always want to play in sacrifice decks and you usually have access to one or two. Um, leverage those to then you know, deal the last two points of damage um, or maybe, you know, get them in position where you're able to burn them out with like a blood artist style effect, anything like that. Um, So I like being aggressive, being really low curved. So any one drop that sacrifices well, I look to. We haven't really had a good one since um, really uh, the one from from Innistrad that made a 1-1 flyer, uh, Doom Traveler. 
Team Traveler. Yeah, there's been there, a lot there's, of there's there's been a few. There's the one that like mills three cards when it comes to play and you sacrifice. Oh yeah, Sti- oh yeah, since sure. Stitch of Supplier. Yeah, of sure. course, Stitch of Supplier is incredible. Yeah. Um, I, I guess there wasn't really a sacrifice deck in standard around that time, and I, I was right. thinking with a very standard lens. But yeah, that, Stitch- that's a better way to put it. Yeah, it, it didn't really have as much impact. Yeah, as, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, there, there's been a lot of one mana one ones that like create some kind of one one when they die. Hunted Witness, you know, the white aggro decks used to play like two of them as a little bit of wrath protection. I thought the red one, uh, the first striker that made that uh, made a zombie army when the it one died. Of the masses, yeah. yeah, I thought that um, Grim Initiate was the, was the card. Something I like that. that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that card was going to see a, a lot more play than it did. Especially um, with Embercleave being around at the same time, right? You just need bodies. Like, oh, yeah. I just thought like it having first strike was occasionally going to be relevant, and sometimes like you could, like you could amass up to like a reasonable size thing, and then you know threaten it as a combat trick but not actually use it. I thought there were a lot of neat tricks you could do with it, but the, the amass mechanic just ended up being pretty underpowered. I remember I built a, like, a... It was, like, a, a cool Rakdos sacrifice deck with, like, a lot of amass cards in it, and my sideboard card for creature decks was, like, the amass Wrath of God. Um, and, and, you know, I, I did some cool stuff with it, but the, the deck wasn't good enough. But here... I think you know, you know, sometimes giving minus one was one to to a creature that's been on several several things. Sometimes it was a counter you put on, you know, whatever that can sometimes be relevant. Uh, You know, there are one toughness creatures you want to kill, but here the 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 coup is create a treasure token. And when I'm when I'm talking about sacrifice decks needing to get onto the battlefield quickly, you know, having access to an additional mana could me make a huge difference. It could mean that you get to double spell a turn earlier than you otherwise you know thought you were. Uh, or you're setting up to get your core vault down a turn earlier. Yeah, this is uh, really know. good at core vault. Yeah, sure. like there's there's so many things that you can do with that treasure token. Making a treasure token, especially early, making treasure tokens on cheap cards is really really valuable. I think for a lot of the time when they you've seen them put make a treasure token on like what used to be a two mana spell, but they made it cost three, like the tormenting mm-hmm. voice that made a treasure token. So you kind of yeah. recouped the extra mana that you had. And all those cards ended up costing like three, four, five mana. And I think that there was a reason for that, because if you start doing that with one and two mana cards, it gets really broken really quickly. Um, for, yeah. for me, that's actually the, the biggest part of the card. Yeah. I actually think that there's a chance this becomes a four of somewhere. Like I really do. And uh, the fact that if there is a good sacrifice deck, like you have a good sacrifice outlet somewhere down the line, you know, it does it does some value. The fact that you can cast it on turn like five or whatever, right? You get to untap, you get to put it into play, sacrifice it for some reason, right? Something else. And then you immediately get the mana back, right? That's huge. Like, can you imagine this with Mayhem Devil? If it was like a thing in, in standard, like how much you could just chain in one turn and like combo out on people. Yeah, you know, like you, you like, get to sack this, ping something, get the treasure, sack the treasure, ping something, cast something else, sack that. Like, you, may, you know. yeah, you're drawing cards if you have Corvold in play every time you're doing this. Like, I think this card's going to be a big time card in Commander as well. I think is, this is going to be a card that sneakily makes it into Commander. Is there a card that lets you c- just cast zombie cards from your graveyard? Yeah, there's like what is it, Rooftop Storm? I think does something along those cards. Also, there's like there's all kinds of stuff that puts you know zombies from your graveyard in, into the battlefield. Um. I, I'm sure I'm missing I, something. I want very a permanent, particular. a permanent yeah. based effect that just lets you cast zombies from your graveyard. I don't think there is one. I think there's ones that let you do it like once per turn. Yeah, but yeah. obviously, yeah, like if there's one that lets you just do it. it from your graveyard, like then it's infinite. Yeah, yeah. I and actually, like this card could go infinite with um with Underworld Breach. Oh, if true. you have, if you you can build a sacrifice stack that has Underworld Breach in it as like a value card that you also just set up infinite kills. I was thinking about this like along the lines of like 
as, as well with Goblin Bombardment and like Gravecrawler and stuff in, in Modern. I've literally built that deck for FNM. Yeah. I, I forwarded FNM last week with a fun, it, I built the deck for fun. It was incredibly fun playing it. And I'm thinking about adding this card to the deck. I thought yeah, I was a little sense. short on zombies. Um, I'm not, I don't really have, like, it's the, I'm a little light on space. So, uh, like, I'm trying to find room for, like, two of them. Definitely a card I, I want to try out. My, my deck is sweet, by the way. I, and if you ever cast smallpox against any of these prowess, like, basically all the decks people are playing in modern right now are, oh like, like p- casting a one drop and only having one more land in their hand, and you just cast smallpox and they can't win the game. It's, <laughs> it's pretty, so it's, good. <laughs> it's pretty good to amulet in the right spot, too, because yes. like, they just cannot afford to lose a land, like, in, in some spots. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, uh, smallpox you- has been a beating. Would you believe me that I put a different card as underrated because I knew you would name this one, and that was originally my underrated card as well, and I always wanted diversity? Yeah, I would believe you. Yeah, because I, I think this card is very good. Yeah, you I, know, I, you know, I'm Rakdos Sacrifice guy. You know? Maybe you should have even been in my top eight. I kind of, I kind of like lost uh, out. Honestly, I hadn't even thought about the the potential with with Underworld Breach until now. Obviously, mm-hmm. like I, I'm not sure if it's better than Breach with um, you know, with grinding station or, or whatever yeah. because it doesn't i guess it, do, it doesn't put the cards in your graveyard so you need to like uh i, I don't know there it feels like there might be that there you need another piece you need something that like mills you when your creatures die i guess you could play all you could play altar of dementia but it only mills one card mm-hmm. hmm. i'm gonna figure it out tan i'm gonna figure it out this seems like a job for you and not for me you tell me if it's good or not and then i'll play the deck or whatever yeah. um do you want do you want to hear what my underrated card is i guess all right are you are you enough waxing poetically about this card are you done i guess okay my <laughs> underrated card is guardian of faith uh this is a one and one white white for a spirit knight that's a three two uh, has a lot of abilities here though it has flash it has vigilance and it says, when it enters the battlefield, any number of other target creatures you control phase out. Now, it does say other, so it can't save itself. But this is a card that's pretty cool at being a decent attacker and being, like, wrath protection. And I like this one better than a lot of the stuff that we've got in the past. Like, you think about, uh, what was it? It was, like, in, in, in Unbreakable Formation or something. I think it was, like, the two and a white. Your creatures gain indestructible until end of turn, whatever. You know, the, the cards that the white decks have always seem to have in these sets lately that it's their you know heroic intervention they're there to you know it, it seems like a wrath prevention type thing you know when your opponent casts their sweeper on four or five you're like well i'll, I'll just like counterspell that with my white spell kind of and keep moving along the reason i like this one better is it does a good job of that but it's also just a decent enough card by itself when that's not happening right you know, how many times in these games have you, like, played your 1-drop, they kill it, you, like, played your 2-drop, they kill it, and then you're sitting there with, like, your your anti-control card, your anti-sweep card in your hand still, and you're like, well, this sucks. Well, now you can just cast the damn thing as a 3-2 with Flash and, with flash and Vigilance now. So, uh, I think this is a card that, while I don't think it's going to be flashy, haha, haha, I don't think it's going to be, you know, super great or whatever, it's going to fill a role if needed to in this set, and it's going to be one of those ones that... I wouldn't be surprised to see two or three of these in a sideboard somewhere if, like, the white aggro deck or another deck that maybe, you know, it's got two colors in it really needs this kind of effect. I think I think it's pr- it's a pretty cool card. Yeah, um, I agree. Like, it, it you is get to kind of, like, yeah, you get to kinda, cool, like hold it card. up. Yeah, you get to kind of, like, hold it up in case they have, a, a you know, the remo- like, the, the mass removal spell, and then they don't. You can still just cast the damn thing, right, and attack them with another creature, like... Yeah, I, I could see it in vile decks like Death and Taxes in Modern potentially. I can see it certainly as an anti-sweeper card. 
Um, you know, and oftentimes it's just going to come in and protect a creature from a removal spell too, right? Especially if they cast the removal spell on their turn, if, if it's sorcery speed and you phase it out and then it phases back in on your turn, it's like you, you've effectively just countered their spell with your three drop. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure if I like even saw this card on the, like when it was previewed. I think it just yeah, completely flew think, by me. Well, the, the thing with the preview set of this set is like, it's like you said, A, we weren't paying as much attention to this one as we have as, as some of the other ones. And B, it's like, it's not flashy. And I think it got previewed at the same time as like a bunch of other cards. So it kind of just got dumped in the middle, you know, it's, and it's, again, it's not flashy. I'm not trying to make this pun or whatever, but like, it's, you know, it's not this, you know, big dragon or planeswalker or some card of 18,000, you know, you know, lines of text and also cheaper when you cast other spells, you know, like Demi Lich. But I think this is a good role, like solid role player that's going to see some play and stuff in the set, which I think is like the key to the set. I think this set is like, it's just a lot of key solid role player cards, which now that I'm thinking about it and it's a D and D set and it's got good role playing cards. I did. I definitely didn't mean to make that like kind of <laughs> pun either. And it just kind of works, right? It just kind of makes sense that this D and set. Now I'm going to say overall, we we've joked about this. You and I've joked about this quite a lot. And like the, the general consensus joking about the set, not being super powerful. A, I think we're kind of spoiled and like kind of just like over it on how powerful it is. And I think this set's a little bit better than we're giving it credit for. And you're going to see a lot of these cards kind of like sneak in. Like there's a, there's a bunch of cards in this set that I think are going to, you know, show up in constructed or like show up in sideboards and stuff here. Like, you know, I'm just thinking of other cards like check for traps in the back of my head. You know, you talked a lot about burning hands. You know, I think that card's really, really good. Um, there's a white sideboard card that I was talking about earlier today with you that I thought like had a chance to show up in some sideboards, depending on how the format goes. And it's, it's another spot where like, you know, I think it's pretty cool. I think the card is a Dawnbringer Cleric or whatever. It's like a 1-3 for 2 mana that, you know, it either gains 2 life, destroys an enchantment, or exiles a card in the graveyard. And, like, that just seems like a really solid role player, you know, from, from a sideboard card and a matchup where, like, you're going to want the body as well. Because I got to believe, I think a lot of these white decks are also going to have equipment in them. And a lot of them are going to be, like, red-white. And so this only costs 1 in white. So just any body that does something else is, is something the deck wants. Because it's going to, you know, just want to attach... These, these good equipments or something onto it. Because like you said, it feels like every Boros card in the last year and a half is like pushing <laughs> the equipment theme. So like the the bar on bodies that you can put in your deck is a little bit lower because like they don't need to be as good standalone now when they can just pick up a knife, you know, or whatever. So yeah, definitely. You know, what is it? Rusty knife or whatever, or rusty blade or whatever. It's the joke. All right, anyway. Uh, so I think that's, we would, we're, we're finished with the over under, right? Yes. So, I got to say, overall, um, another card, uh, Prosperous Innkeeper. I think you and I were talking about earlier, the 1-1 one, one for 2 that when it enters the battlefield, it creates a treasure token, and then it's a Soul Warden as well. Like, you know, that's another card that, like, you know, could show up and, and do some yeah. things. We're not yeah, worried about. There's, so, like, there's the Selesnya Johnny's Pride Mate to go along with it. That, yeah, that exactly. tries as well as getting a counter when, when you gain life. There's another 2-drop that makes a treasure, and it's Rakdos, which is a good color for treasures. It's a Kalein Reclusive Painter. Red and black for a 1-2. It's a legendary human elf bard. ETB, make a treasure token. Other creatures you control enter the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on them for each mana from a treasure spent to cast them. Um, so just could be a way to sort of like uh, either like ramp through your deck and, and do stuff. I'm a little worried about just the body being a 1-2. So you're kind of paying for the treasure. So I do like Prosperous Innkeeper a little bit more. Uh, though I like the colors on Kalein. Um yeah, there could definitely be something going on with treasures at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So um, I got to say, overall, I'm a little more 
impressed with the set once I like really sat down and dove into it. You know, there's a bunch of other cards we're not even talking about uh, yet as well that I'm like pretty excited about and think that could show up in some other spots and stuff too. So, um, you know, overall, I think the set's better than we're giving it credit for. I think is what I've been trying to say the whole time. I I think this set is going to look really bad for two months, and then it's going mm-hmm. to be significantly better than Strixhaven after rotation. I'll tell you this though, I, from from a financial standpoint, I am not rushing out to buy packs of this. I, I agreed. I think the EV on this set is extremely low, I, and yeah. you will almost never get your money back buying a box or anything of this or collector stuff. So. It, I think I think this set's going to have a rough time, like you said. Um, yeah, every I think everyone's just going to play modern for the summer, and we're going to yeah. have to revisit things. You know, yeah. we we should do like a uh, a show right before rotation where we have our like top eight cards from the last year that we need to revisit. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, like that the, the the underrated cards going into new standard. Yeah, like cards that like we'll have to go back and look at every like at a lot of challenges and see like which cards didn't really show up. And, you know, figure out where, where we want to, uh, wh- which ones we think are really going to take a leap now that they're not oppressed. I think it's I think it's a good idea. You know, I've always joked about that, um, especially I say suppressed. Yeah, especially f- further in the past when magic was a little different. You know, it was more like this was the kind of norm for sets where every time rotation happened, there is always some mythic or always some rare that hadn't, you know, we, we thought was powerful and hadn't shown up yet. And you're like, this is about to be a four of. You know, this is this is a card you need to go get now because it's about to get a more expensive and b like heavily played, you know, kind of thing. And it's just like overall, I'm looking at the set. I'm looking at all the the mythics. I just think you have way more misses than you have hits. Like, there's some cards that are okay, but I think like all these planeswalkers are pretty underwhelming overall. You know, and yeah. mythic. I think most of the dragons are underwhelming, right? And then like you have these cards that like say build around me, but like you know when you look at like the books, but like. I don't think they're worth building around, you know, unless like it's supplementary as well. Like your deck just does this anyway, kind of thing, you know? And so I'm not loving this set, but it's better than I gave it credit for to begin with. So, all right. Do you want to do some, uh, some, some mailbag stuff? Let's some, do some it. Housekeeping. All right, cool. Let me pull that up. It's going to take one second here. I think we actually had a mailbag submission. We did. All right. This is from Seth Petro too. One of my, one of my favorite, favorite uh, patrons of the show uh so chef says we're returning to to paper magic and with that comes aspects of magic that not a lot of people have had in the last 12 months which is playing your opponent as well as the game i'm talking about physical tells verbal tells emotional reactions etc do you think that this could play a big part in people's experience in rendering the gathering portion of magic the gathering our favorite pastime i'm going to answer in like this is coming from a poker player and someone who probably does actually look for physical tells a little bit more in magic than most people. Like I remember Ross making a comment once when he first played with me in a thing that like, I just like stare at my opponent a lot when, when the games are going on. Um, I don't think it's going to be a big new thing because it's almost never been a thing and almost no one does it. So like when I'm playing poker, I have a, I have a poker face, you know, like I have, you know, I'm, I'm actually conscious of like, because there, there, there's a saying, right? Everything you do at a poker table conveys information, right? This, the same is true about magic, but with nobody really, really delving into it and like really utilizing it a lot, it doesn't matter as much, right? Well, in poker, you're a lot more conscious of it, and it's always in the back of my mind. Like I just don't move, 
right? Like I'm very stoic when I play the game poker. Magic, I'm definitely more hard on my sleeve than I am other games, and I'm probably a little more sto- stoic than most people. But I try not to give stuff away, and I do pick up stuff on my opponent a little bit. But like, again, all it takes is for you to get like one wrong read, and it's really bad for you. And then you're gonna realize afterwards that like you probably should have just played a solid game anyway. You know, you probably should have just made the standard play there anyway instead of being like... Because I'm not going to lie, Ross, there's there's been times, like, I remember we won a match in a tournament where I made a different play because Brennan was like, hey, are you about to do this? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, no, do this. And he told me something different. I'm like, what? And he goes, just trust me. Like, I, 100%, I think this is the right play. And I made it, and it was just 100% right. Like, he just had a read on our opponent, you know, kind of thing. And, like, I think the opportunity cost for it is a little too high for how unoften this comes up. I completely agree. Um, I think, you know, honestly, as little as it gets talked about, I still think it gets talked about too much. Um, it's just generally not a huge part of, of the game. There, there are like, you know, really obvious things, you know, back in, in the days when Snapcaster was everywhere in modern and people would like draw a card late in the game and immediately look to their <laughs> graveyard, graveyard or pick up their yeah. graveyard. Like, okay. I'm, um, I'm, I'm guilty of that one for yeah, sure. Uh, you know, there's stuff like that. Uh, that, that is very obvious, but the, like the or imperceptible things, or it, arranging their mana in a way that like you can tell what spells they have. Yeah, yeah. There's just too much. I think there's too much going on in Magic to focus a lot of your energies towards building that part of your game. Like you'd you'd be much better served spending those energies working on your sideboarding, your deck building, your metagame, uh, you know, analysis, any of those things that you know that poker doesn't really have. I assume poker does have some sort of metagame that goes on, um, but not quite as, as dynamic, I think, as magics. Uh, certainly the, you know, the poker as a game evolves over time and people devise different, you know, ways of playing, but it's not as, um, in magic, it's sort of baked into the game as new cards come. And so it happens a lot more quickly. Uh, and so you, you know, there's just so many other things that you have to worry about. Um, and when it comes to tells in magic, the, the one place where people should work on it is just reading what your opponent has based on ha- what they're playing. You know, you should, if you know what cards are in your opponent's deck and they like, you know, cast a three drop that's obviously not, you know, the, the three drop they would be casting if they had, you know, if they cast Bone Crusher Giant, they probably don't have Annex in their hand, for example. And if they, you know, had the opportunity to use an, uh, a removal spell on your Edgewall Innkeeper on turn one, they probably don't have a Frostbite in their hand, right? Those are the kind of things that, like, you should put yourself in, in their shoes a lot of the time and say, like, if I had card X, would I have played it in any of these spots? And if they ha- if that's true, if you can say, I would have played it in these three spots, and, you know, and they didn't, like, they really, they probably don't have it. Or if, like, you know, they're con- consistently leaving up one or two mana, maybe they have some sort of spell there if they're, like, going out of their way to do it. You know, if they play three drop on turn four, four drop on turn five, that can be a tell that they have some sort of one mana piece of interaction that they're trying to find a spot to use in and that you should be playing around that card. So m- most of the time the tells in Magic come from literally how your opponent is playing the game and not from the sort of imperceptible way we think of tells from poker. So that's what you should be focusing on. And uh, I bet a lot of people are going to be, I, I like the, it, I guess it, that still comes up on, on MTGO and, and arena, you know, on digital forms of, of the, of the, of the game. So people probably won't be that rusty about it, but you can also sometimes get a little bit of a read off of like how they're tapping their lands. You know, if they're specifically leaving two lands off to the side, you know, it's a, a pretty big sign that they have like in their head, they have those lands earmarked for something. 
Um, so, uh, you know, this works a lot better with people who are particularly organized about how they maintain their battlefield. You can usually generate a little bit more information out of them. Um, so just, ha- you know, it's, it's, it's less about the, like, you know, they, you know, touch their ear here, or I saw them blink after they drew their card and they held but, their breath. Yeah. 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 And much more about, you know, how they're actually playing the game. I think one of the biggest problems that comes to this is how romanticized that part of poker is and how like. They, they talk about it so much in movies and TV shows. They're like, oh, he held his breath here, or like he yeah. checked differently here, or blah, blah, blah. Like, that stuff just doesn't happen. Like, that's just not an actual thing. Yeah. So much of it is like, well, he was in the similar spots 10 hands ago, and he made this play with this hand, and now he's like, you know, instead of betting three decks over me, he's betting four decks over me. What is his range now? Maybe yeah. he has a slightly better hand, or maybe he realizes that I know that. Like, it's so much about that. Again, how they're playing the game, even in poker. The big, the biggest tell for me, like, the biggest tell for me in the history of poker is just betting patterns. It's kind of like what you were talking about, like just what they do in each individual situation tells you a lot about what is possibly going on. And I'm not gonna lie, like I have tried to you know pick up physical tells and stare at my, you know, I've played enough that I'm gonna like look, you know, at my opponent and stuff. But you know, I used to be one of the guys that would like stare you down when it's your when it's your turn to go and like, hey, it's just kind of douchey and be like. I just don't trust myself enough. I've gone with tells before and been drastically wrong. I've gone with tells before and been drastically right. But like, you know, just it's just other things. It's it's generally like betting patterns and the speed at which they do things. But, yeah. You know. And it, you've got a bit, you know, I, your point about opportunity cost is also well received. I, I, a lot of the time when, when you go for that, like you're going for that romantic moment where you feel like you uh, and a very satisfying moment where you think you got one over on the person and it's that like moment where you like flip over your cards and it's the, the straight bluff and you just kind of smirk at your opponent and you just feel like a super big brain. Um, and in chasing that, like you're, you're not gaining that much more of an edge usually when you're doing that in magic. It's not like you're all like going all in or, or something. And even in poker like that, again, that doesn't happen that often. And yeah, if you're wrong, like you're often making a really horrible play that can very easily cost you a game. Or at least put you really far behind. So, you, you, if you're even if you're even going to consider doing things like that, you've always got to take into account the situation that you're in and the risk reward equation that goes along with that situation. And don't forget, it can also be used against you too. Like if I've noticed before, and this is this is very meta, but I've noticed before, like in you know, like a home game that I used to play in, where somebody picked up something on me, where like they just knew when I was bluffing, and I figured it out. I figured it out that it had to do with like the speed at which I was doing something. Like if I took over a certain amount of time, I was bluffing just because I was like, you know, trying to put, you know, full ranges together, like trying to figure everything out. And when I thought about the hand so much longer, then I was like less decisive. And that usually meant that I was bluffing like nine out of 10 times. And so the next time that I played a big pot with them and I had like a really, really good hand, I took fucking forever. Right. (laughs) And then like, I bet some super large amount and they beat me in the pot. They like snap called and I turned over like, you know, obviously the best hand or whatever. And I just looked at them, and I saw the realization on them that they were like, oh, I got God. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, like, you know, you could only shear a sheep so many times or whatever, you know, or you could only skin a, sh- a sheep so many times. And, like, I probably should. It's like a, it's like the joke, you know, I should have leaned on him all night and not let him know, you know, when he broke the Oreo that I figured out his tell. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. But, like, you know, there's little things like that. Like, I remember a game of Magic. And, like, it also depends on who you're playing against, too. Like, I remember a game of Magic I played years and years and years and years ago against who was, like, probably the, the best player at the LGS at the time. And... They were, like, going to attack me one turn. I needed them, like, I was, like, flooding out, right? Like, my hand's, like, a bunch of lands. I needed them, like, not to attack me so just, like, blazingly aggressively. And I had a bunch of man up. So 
when I drew my card for my turn, I turned the card sideways and like read it a little bit because it was in one of the sets with the split cards. And my opponent, and I was in the colors where there was like one that was like three red, white target player sacrifices two attacking creatures or whatever. Right. And so, uh, my opponent only attacked me of one creature for like the next six turns of the game. And I flooded out and died. Right. There's, there's no grand thing to the story of like, Oh, it made me win the game. But when the game was over, he just looks at me and he goes, Hey, you really need to be careful of that kind of stuff. Like, you know, you, you turn the card sideways and read it. And like, I knew you had this and played it around the whole game. And so I just fanned my hand on the board where it's just three lands and looked at him. You know, and he was like, oh, well, and I was like, I wouldn't have said a damn thing if he didn't make the smart ass comment yeah. at the end or whatever. But like, I'm just saying they work both ways, you know, and stuff. So, all right, let's move over to some overrated, underrated. We got some cool ones in here. Um, Flackle, the first one says LMFAO, the musical act. Never seen it, but I've heard nothing but absurdly good stuff about it. So I'm going to go with underrated. I've never heard anything and barely know who they are. Yeah, I've heard it's really good. Uh, Joe, Mr. English says musicals. I'm going to go with overrated. They're just not my thing. Uh, underrated. I'm sure they're they're underrated for other people, overrated for yeah. me. A lot of people really don't like them, and I think they're great. I don't, I wouldn't say they're great, but I enjoy theater. Yeah. I probably enjoy non-musical theater more than musical theater, um, but a, a good musical, you know, I, I will very much enjoy, um, but I just generally enjoy theater and, and find it underrated. It's something like I, I know very little about it. It's actually one of my I think it's my single weakest trivia category in my online league. Um, but uh, I want to, you know, and I want to start going to uh, to more shows. And we've got a nice little regional theater here in Roanoke. Uh, obviously, with the pandemic, I haven't seen anything in a while, but I've seen um, three or four, I think, in, in my time here. And I've greatly enjoyed all of them. So underrated awesome yeah i i maybe can find a way to enjoy them more uh, at some point in time but maybe there, i just don't have the patience for it or something i don't know there was a really cool one uh if you give me a second that i sure. saw it was it was on their side stage and it was there was only two people uh and it was about a relationship between two physicists and they played with the the storytelling and they uh, essentially played out this relationship in like seven different alternate universes. And so they would do a scene and then a bell would ring and the stage would darken and then immediately lighten again as they repositioned. And then they would do that same scene in the second universe. That's and really like cool, something, actually. And something yeah. different would happen. Like in one universe one of them cheated on the other in the next universe. The other one cheated on them in the other universe. Like they broke up for some other reason. And then you see the, like the next scene though, like they go and they, they have the chance encounter, you know, after the breakup and one of them is pining for the other. And it depends on who was the one who was the cheater and the, the cheaty. And like, so they, they have to like the, the two actors had to just like flip moods so quickly because it's not like they went off stage and came back on. It was the same set that like, you know, they're doing each scene in pretty rapid succession. Uh, and obviously like they were talking about the, the physics behind these concepts during it because they're both physicists. So you got that background a little bit too. It was, it was really cool. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I can appreciate it. The shrimp. Oh, one says team sealed. I'm going to go with massively underrated. I love team events to begin with. I think we don't get to play anywhere near enough limited. I love limited. And I think this, but here's the thing. I think the barrier for entry, and I don't necessarily mean just the money for Team Sealed, is really high. Like, if you're not on a busted team that knows what you're doing, you're going to have a very hard time in this tournament if your decks aren't absurd. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, Team Sealed is super fun. Building is like, 
it's just an incredible it's, a, it's extremely puzzle. difficult it's, yeah it's one of the it's one of the hardest things you'll ever do in the game of magic and it, it's very rewarding when you have a team that you work well together with like you've got to you know when you're built when you're creating a team for team sealed like, obviously like you all have to be you know pretty good you don't all have to know everything like you, you if if you don't know a certain deck as long as like if there are major archetypes like what at least one of you should know each major archetype right uh and you know maybe multiples and you can recognize when that archetype is, is something you should build and then you just kind of give it to that person or give it to those two and then they decide who, who wants to play it but there's almost always going to be like you know one deck that's a little bit worse than the other two or one deck that's a little bit better than the other two and you know you you've got to sort of make the decisions that are better best for the team uh, but the puzzle itself of just like building the three correct decks and and splitting up sideboard cards, uh, super fun. Uh, I agree, very underrated. Um, funny little story, very quick about this. Uh, Star City Games used to run Team Sealed Opens back in the day. Obviously, I they remember these. As, they weren't as popular. They weren't as great. They take freaking forever, and they're a nightmare for like putting everything together. But I was supposed to play on one of these and ended up not playing it. Something happened at the last minute and I like, couldn't make my plane or they had to like, you, you get what I'm saying? Like, you know, the week before I was like, you know, hey, something's up. I, I can't. This is when I was living in Vegas and like some tournament came up or something. I don't remember. There's some reason why I could not come to the team sealed event and I've been practicing. I was ready. The team that I would have played for replaced me and won the tournament. So uh, who knows? Maybe I would have had a trophy. Um, You know. You could say that, I guess. Good, good beats, right? <laughs> good beats. All right, Amr Hill uh, says money drafts. Also underrated, but again, same thing I said about Team Sealed. Uh, you probably shouldn't join these willy nilly if you've like never done this kind of thing. But you know, you won't uh, you won't learn if you don't try it. And also, they just don't exist anymore. So yeah, I honestly kind of think these are a little overrated. You, um, you, it's nostalgia for people for sure. Yeah, the, are, this like, really used to be it. part of the culture, and I I remember doing it quite a bit. For you the know. culture, yeah, I've done it quite a bit myself, <laughs> but. You know, we got to the point where we just wanted to leave and go home, <laughs> and uh, especially for like the one day events like PTQs and stuff. Um, and then, you know, it's sort of gotten replaced by, you know, cube if people have a cube on them at a big event. And they're like, it's not a, like money drafting didn't really go away per se, like literally money drafting did. But what the the function that money drafting served in the community which was to be like the the thing that gathered people together that still very much exists we just gather around different things so it's just a different manifestation of that of the gathering and so i don't really decry like one manifestation going away and obviously like i agree with you that the people who do it's just for nostalgia's sake so there's really like nothing stopping people generally from doing it if they want to do it but um, you know, I generally like, I, I'm just not much of a gambler. So like, yeah, you know, in the magic that. community used to be more of degenerate gamblers back in the day. Um, so I'd much rather just hang out, you know, play a little cube, just play for bragging rights and not have to worry about buying packs and, you know, and worrying about my 20 fucking dollars. Uh, I got a, I got a cool little story with this. I'm at a Grand Prix once, you know, a bunch of my friends and, uh, it's like day two or whatever. And one of them's like, hey, we're doing a money draft for these uh, randoms over here. Do you want to come play? And, you know, the, the two people asking me were, like, pretty decent local players to me. So I was like, okay, who who, who is it? And they, they pointed they pointed at the three randoms, right? And I'm like, nah, man, I'm good. I'm going to go do something else. Uh, let me know how it goes, whatever, though, right? And I don't see them until, like, later that night when we get back to the hotel or we're getting dinner or whatever, blah, blah, blah. It might have been day one. I don't remember. Whatever. And I was like, hey, how'd your... Uh, your money draft go and they're like oh man we lost I, he's like i don't know what happened it's like lost this random you know blah 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 and i just couldn't stop laughing 
And they're like, what's so funny? And I'm the, the name of the person escapes me right now, but the specific person that he pointed out and called him a random, I was like, that is the number one rated limited player in the world right now, and he won the last limited pro tour. Or he won a <laughs> limited pro tour like a year and a half ago. He just like, you know there's those players that are just like super unassuming, you look at them and like, they just blend in. Yeah. Like, you know, I've got some jokes about this of Brock Parker. You know, like I've, I've literally had someone call Brock Parker a random at a, at a like local PTQ before, and I'm like, that's a pro tour champion. <laughs> and they just like gave him the second look and they're like, oh, you know, whatever. So um, anyway, uh, Leo, the magic man says, hold, hold Apocalypse. on. I, so I have some funny ahead, money graph stories as well. They're not as good, but my, my, why would they be? They, yeah. I mean, like, they just can't. I remember money drafting at um, Pro Tour Philadelphia, the first modern Pro Tour. And we're money drafting on day two. It didn't day two. And a couple people from Connecticut that knew me like needed a third for a team and they knew some people that, that had also scrubbed out of the Pro Tour. And I was the person that nobody knew. Uh, you know, this is my second Pro Tour. But the Connecticut people, like, knew I was pretty good. And we and I was I was good in this format, too. And we sit down, and they think I'm, I'm the easy person to beat. And I ended up just opening busted packs, uh, which helped. Uh, but my if you remember, uh, in M12, there was the card Arachnus Spinner. The, the six-mana 5-7 reach that could tap to tutor up Passivisms. The Arachnus Web. And I just opened Arachnus Spinner in pack one and pack three. And nobody liked green cards in that format for whatever reason. And I just like figured out how to draft the green decks. And in this case, I just got a busted one uh, and just like, you know, fucked up the draft, which was fun. But then I've, I'm going to put um, uh, Adam Snook on blast on the second one. And this was a money draft we did after a PTQ in RTR. And I was he, he and I were playing the, the very last match. It was 3v3. We were four matches piece. And I was like a good Selesnya aggro deck, and he was a deck that had Packrat in it. And we go to game three, and he was on the play and just played turn two Packrat. And I was like, God damn it, you piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> but I had turned two, I had turned two call of the Conclave into like a busted Selesnya curve, and I actually just outpaced the Packrat. And so I, I literally beat turn two Packrat on the draw and limited without a removal spell. Mm -hmm. Nice. Love being uh, Packrat. I, re I remember the player's name now, if you're interested. Who is it? With Mike Haran. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a very unassuming, absolutely incredible limited player. Yeah, he's looking. He looks like just like any other Magic player ever. He's just he's just like one of the greatest limited minds in the history of the game. Yeah, you know, kind I, of I, I played him in a in a Pro Tour once. Unfortunately, it was constructed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank yeah, God. I just, remember, I just remember my friends were like, "Man, what the hell? Like, why didn't you tell us?" I was like, "A, you were playing for a lot, and B, you need to be taught a lesson sometimes. Like, <laughs> yeah, you, you won't learn otherwise. Sometimes you need to get got." Yeah, so you get got. Hey, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hurt somebody else's hustle. You know what I mean? All right. So, uh, Leo, the Magic Man, says Apocalypse Now. You want to go first? Um. Yeah. We. Uh. So uh, this is. I watched this movie recently, because a, a couple months ago, uh, I was hanging out at uh, the house with Rob and uh, director Rob and Anderson Leclaire, and we found out that Anderson had never watched Goodwill Hunting because it came out the year he was born. And Goodwill Hunting is probably my, my favorite movie of all time. It's up there for me, for sure. Yeah, and so I immediately made him watch it. Like, literally, like, a, you know, I think Rob had a copy. Uh, and so we just put it on and watched it, and he was like, yeah, that was great. What other movies should I see? And we, like, Rob and I just started listing movies. We started listing just 90s movies, and then we just went into, like, a bunch of movies. He's like, yeah, let's, ha let's start I, I having him. I remember this, by the yeah. way. And he and Anderson's like, yeah, let's have a movie night. And, like, once a week we'd get together and we'd watch a movie, maybe two if we had time. And it, at the end, we would all rate them. 
And so because Anderson likes making spreadsheets for whatever reason. And then Anderson like kept track of our top five and the average score we gave everything. And obviously like an elaborate plan like this, like you do it for a month and then, and then you stop, which is basically what we did. But I think we ended up watching like five or 10 movies over the course of it. And one of them was Apocalypse Now. And it was awful. So massively overrated. I like, I, I was pretty tired. I remember like it was late and I, I like was sort of do- dozing in and out during the movie, but basically nothing happens the entire movie. Like, like nothing really that coherent. And I'm sure it's supposed to be like some elaborate sort of metaphor that's really deep for no reason. And like, I just, I'm, it, it just, I could, I couldn't even like tell at the end if they were like trying to glorify war or not. And it just, it didn't make any, nothing that happens makes sense. It's all very surreal and it's meant to be very surreal. And maybe I just don't really like surrealism. Um, but I, I very much did not enjoy it. It might be my least favorite movie of the ones that we watched that and Pulp Fiction. I don't know. I watched, finally watched Pulp Fiction. I don't understand why people like that movie. I, and again, like there's a bunch of shit going on in the background that like you're supposed to pick up on. I'm like, what the, f- it's a movie. I don't want to s- have to sit here and like fucking, you know, have to pay attention to every little bit. I'm like, like, otherwise I'm going to have to watch the thing like 12 times. Like, uh, it just, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't resonate. So I've never seen it. I'm kind of glad now. All right. Next. Yeah. Uh, it's also eight. incredibly long. It's like two and a half to three hours. Like it's just like the guy's just like going on a boat on some mission to find a dude. And then he finds him at the end and he's like a god Spoiler. somewhere. Spoiler. I haven't yeah, seen it The yet. movie's from the fucking seventies. I know. I just know. like. I'm probably ugh. not going to watch it. So Just um, nonsense. I, it, uh, it, the entire movie felt very um, masturbatory and self-indulgent to me. Like, okay. like it was an, it was like a, um, a pay on to like how smart the director was. And I just oh, didn't buy yeah. it. It's one of those look at me. I'm great movies. Okay. I get it. Yeah. All right. Joe, Mr. English 22 says Armageddon. The movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I skipped one, but we'll, we'll go back. All right. Yeah. Armageddon, the movie underrated literal cinematic classic. Um, <laughs> I think it's amazing. Uh, it does beg the question. What would be easier to do? teach astronauts how to drill or teach drillers how to be astronauts but i'm not here to figure that one out i'm just here to be super entertained by putting drillers into a space shuttle shooting them onto a meteor and have them destroy the meteor with guns that's all i'm there for right i cannot tell you how many times i have watched the second half of this movie yeah because for uh we whenever um my roommate and I, especially our sophomore year in college, whenever we would get high, uh, we would have he would usually be playing his music, and he had Sweet Emotion in, in like on this playlist. And whenever Sweet Emotion came on, we were just like, "Let's watch the scene from Armageddon." And he yeah. would bring up a, a full file of Armageddon rather than the scene, uh, and because he knew exactly where it was, and we would start watching the scene, and we would invariably just continue watching the rest of the movie. Yeah, uh, it's and- got a great cast and a great. Uh- like, it's it's, it's not a very good too. movie. It's entertaining. Oh, oh it's dog shit. Yeah, but like <laughs> it's, it's it's entertaining. I act. I I I think Deep Impact is better. It's a better Deep Impact's a better movie. Yeah, the one the one but with Armageddon was like a bigger Armageddon was a blockbuster while Deep Impact was not. Yeah, it's 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 a funny movie to watch, especially Steve Buscemi. And I mean, he's amazing. So yeah. just for everyone counting at home, um, definitely underrated. So uh, sorry, this this one went with. Apocalypse Now, K-Fit says Apocalypse the set. Uh, probably underrated. I think it was like 
pretty successful, uh, like, it was a very one-of-a-kind set at its time. Like, it yes. came out, you know, it, like, tried out some new stuff, and Wizards was like, all right, we can do this, and kind of, like, did a lot of really cool multicolor, you know, very crazy stuff going no, on. After. Not just multicolor, but enemy-colored stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, exactly. The, I'm saying they were trying. They were trying stuff they had never done before. Yeah, like you know, back in the day, they took that those pairings a lot more seriously. And and now these days, like I bet new players don't even understand that like they're supposed to be enemy colors and friendly pair or enemy pairs and friendly pairs. But it, yeah, the, the the pie is a lot softer. Now yeah, it was much it, more firm back then. But in case you don't know that that concept, listening at home, if you look at the back of a magic card. And you see the the five little orbs of the five colors. The ones that are next to each other are friendly pairs, and the ones that are across the pentagon from each other are enemy pairs. So, like Golgari and Orzov are the enemies of black, uh, or enemy pairs for black, and Rakdos and Demir are the friendly pairs, and so on and so on. And you know, most multicolored stuff back in the day was all friendly color pairs. Like the, yeah, the so original they worked the, better together. Yeah, yeah. The original pain lands were just the friendly colors that you got. A lot of the land cycles were only in friendly colors. The the uncommon tapped lands and invasion were only friendly colors. And the apocalypse, the entire set was built around those those enemy color pairs. And that that was very new. And I really like. I think it's better for Magic to just treat the ten color pairs pretty similarly. And that's what they decided to do the next time they did a multicolor block with Ravnica, and it ended up being one of the most popular <laughs> sets of all time and most popular planes of all time. So uh, I don't think Ravnica happens without Apocalypse and some of the success of those cards. How yeah, how exciting Spiritmonger was, even though it ended up not being a competitive, real competitive card, or Vindicate being a really exciting card, destroy any permanent. Um, and, I feel and, like we're doing an episode of the Resleavables right now. Yeah, basically. So uh, I, I think they, I think they've done Apocalypse. I think they did the the whole invasion block. So I hope, hope I don't know if they have the same opinion, but to me, the, like Apocalypse is a, is a very important set for showing wizards that like they didn't have to be so narrow minded in their definitions of the multicolored uh, cards, and, and they could expand it to all t- uh, you know ten color pairs. I'm really glad that you mentioned Spiritmonger because I want you to understand like the coolness of Spiritmonger for me. Um, uh, for everybody at home, so, like, I started playing Magic in, like, 1995-ish. Like, Ice Age was not out yet. Like, Fallen Empires was new. The Dark was new. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a bad time to get into Magic, honestly, when you're buying the cheaper yeah. packs. Because those are the cheapest ones, and I had a small allowance, so I was buying really bad packs. Anyway, um, I took a very long time off of Magic and missed a lot of, like, I, I you know, I missed, you know, a lot of the sets there towards, like, you know, the middle of that area, like prophecy and urza saga and also i was not playing then and then i got back into it like really late high school like early college you know early 2000s it started getting you know i started getting competitive again i think i played my first ptq in like kamigawa and i've been playing a little bit before that you know i was playing in mirrodin but when i came back a little bit before that you know like odyssey odyssey onslaught was like going on right like onslaught was like new odyssey was out like we're doing all that stuff but the first card I saw when I came back to it and that someone showed me, because like I just opened their binder and they had it in the front of the binder, was was uh, Spiritmonger. I did not believe the card was real. Just because it was so much better than anything that even remotely came close to existing. When I played, I was like, yo, this card is not real. So I've always had like a funny part in my heart for that one. Uh, going back to movies, after what Joe said, Brent Wagner, editor, said, Monty Python humor and the Holy Grail movie. Uh... The humor might be a tiny, tiny bit overrated, but I find that just most comedies in general, once you get about 10 to 15 years past them, they don't age very well in general. Obviously, some do. Um, I do think Holy Grail is like a, 
I love that. I, I loved that movie when I was younger. I really, really enjoyed it. I haven't watched it in a long time. I do think the humor in that movie is kind of great overall. Like, and it's just very witty and very British, you know, kind of very like, it's very European type humor. And I liked it a lot as a kid. Uh, I don't, I, I probably haven't watched a movie in like 10 or 15 years though. So I, I, yeah, I would generally say overrated for both of these things, but still good. Yeah. 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 Uh, Pasty tarts lobbing scimitars out of bodies of water is no way to establish a government, Ross. I don't remember the exact quote, but yeah. Anyway, uh, Lee McLeod says, brewing your own beer. I'm personally going to say overrated because I don't want to put in work in something that I would just like pay money to go get or whatever. But if you're into that kind of thing, underrated. Because yeah. like, you know, the, 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 the euphoric high afterwards, the beer is remotely edible. Then like that sounds great. Yeah, it is a lot of work uh, and like it's you've got to get all the and a lot of equipment. Uh, but I've heard like once you, once you get all the stuff that you need, as long as you're careful, it's not that hard. Um, you know, it's really just about, you know, taking your time and making sure that you don't, um, uh, blow yourself up, not blow yourself up, but like, you don't, that you don't contaminate it. Yeah. Uh, as long as you let it ferment and and don't, I'd find a way Ross, I would find a way to blow myself up anyway. Mm, So would I. All right. Uh, JPA35 says CP3. For everybody at home that doesn't know, that's Chris Paul III. I'm going to go with, I'm just going to say underrated, honestly, a little bit, just because of what's going on this year, because it's pretty obvious that he's had a huge impact on the Suns. Um, though I do think he gets a lot of shit for his career, it's probably deserved for a lot of the stuff that he's gotten. Um, so I think his contribution to the Suns this year has been overrated, but his career okay. in general is quite underrated. Yeah, that's kind of... Okay, I, I can definitely deal with the second yeah. part of what you said. The, I think his the, career is slightly yeah. underrated, yeah. The, the Suns, I think, have largely risen... You know, obviously, like, his addition was, was a big deal, but the thing that really elevated them to elite status is the quality of their role players. Like, you know, Mikael Bridges became an all-defensive player, quality player on the perimeter, as well as a 40% three-point shooter. They got a pretty good shooting year out of Jay Crowder, uh, which I wish the Jazz could have ever gotten. Um, and, um, they, they're getting incredible contributions off the bench from Cam Johnson and campaign, especially campaign, uh, and Sarge as a backup center has also been good. So a lot of like, they hit on every single depth piece really, really well. So they didn't need outsized contributions from their stars. They just needed their stars to be healthy and be good. And they've also been the healthiest team all year. So, um, but his career is incredible and he should go down as one of the, I, I would say third best point guards of all time. Yeah, I'll say that's, that's about the area I have it. All right. Uh, Reverend Christ says, heist movies in general, Logan L- Lucky is an example. I think these are underrated. I actually enjoy these quite a bit. And sometimes movies like this can give me like anxiety problems, you know, or like they keep messing up or like, you know, they keep having like this thing like just out of their reach. And sometimes I'm just like, so in like in depth into the movie and what the characters to, to win so much or do so well that it gives me a problem. But in general, I actually really like these movies they are very creative and they have like just enough, uh, comedic relief in them and stuff like that. I actually really liked Logan Lucky and the actors and stuff in it. So, um, that's a big thing too. If the cast is good enough, these movies are generally very good. Yeah. I think they, it provides a, um, it provides a good way to incorporate both drama and comedy. Um, so yeah, I'll generally say underrated. Uh, Joe, Mr. English says time travel as a plot device, massively overrated. Yes. In my opinion. Agreed. Um, Cathal says Ocean's Eleven. I'm also going to go with overrated on this. It took a okay plot, an okay movie, and slapped 
every named actor known to man on it and then it made it like you know a successful movie i think if you just put like you know relative unknowns and some some normal people in, i don't think the movie is even remotely successful as it is or spawns as many uh sequels as it does which i don't remember which one oceans 11 is i don't remember that's the first one or not i think it might have been oceans 11 was the first one okay. and it the one that you're thinking of is actually a remake of the original from the 60s yeah which had Frank Sinatra and and it was like a I don't know if it was the entire Rat Pack, but it was like that kind of yeah yeah sure sure. So uh, do you want to? Is it overrated or underrated to you? Uh, still yeah, overrated. I would generally say. Okay. Um, Cathal has another one, and he says etched versus foil. In parentheses, there is a huge difference between them. For those of you who don't know, I want to hear your answer first. Um, I think the concept of etched versus foil is overrated, and I hate how many versions of cards they print. Um, that, uh, <laughs> definitely, definitely that. Yeah. All right. I think we're going to, it's the ahead. same thing that with like sports teams now making 17 different jerseys. Yeah. It's just like generally worth it for them. Like to, because there's, there is diminishing returns on any one given type of Jersey, because even if it's only a small number of people that will buy both who are that devoted and like that much of a collector, it, it is, you gain profit by like making 90% of one thing and 10% of another thing. And I'm sure like, you know, uh, you know, they probably employ, you know, people to figure out, uh, you know, to build models, to figure out exactly how much of each that they, they should produce based on how many they expect to sell. Um, but it's all horseshit that is completely profit driven and j just creates the conditions for overconsumption. Let's go ahead and end this year. Um, I think we've got a, enough for this week's episode. Um, next week, I'll have actually played with the D&D &D cards, and I'll definitely be able to tell you if there's any surprises. I'm going to play on Arena, obviously. Um, I'll probably I'll probably be... I have a feeling I'm going to find Dungeon to be really cool in Limited. You don't want to play on Moto and have 17-minute queue times? No. I also don't want the program to fail every time you venture into the dungeon which is, <laughs> which is i think possibly going to happen it's going to freak out whenever you venture into the dungeon and like restart the game and you're like well i can't play any of those cards in my deck so uh no, there's just going to be like one dungeon that you can't venture into the other two will yeah. somehow work fine yeah one of them is just, it's not allowed you're not yeah. allowed in there so um <laughs> but i would be remiss if i didn't talk about our great sponsor barrister and man that's man with two n's uh, make sure you check them out at barristerandman.com. Use the code MTGRANTS for 15% at checkout. Ross, I heard you got some stuff from them recently. Have you had a chance to use it? Yeah, I've been uh, breaking into the the Waves soap. Nice little uh, fresh sort of surf smell on, on that one. I've not broken into the hand soaps yet. I'm just getting to the end of my current bottle of hand soap. So I'm going to be close to getting into that tomato leaf. Uh, maybe even by, the, by our next one. episode next week. Yeah, very interested in that. But I will say... The the bear the the nice soap from Barrister and Man really comes in handy during the Roanoke summers when I average about two and a half showers a day because I'm losing eight pounds a day in sweat. Yeah. Uh, what is the word that we were talking about a couple weeks ago? It's this. It's the smell of falling rain. Petrichor. Yeah. So I I had that one recently, and uh, I'm a fan. I'm a yeah. fan. It's a new one. I gotta get it's me very some refreshing. Petrichor. It's like very refreshing. You know what I mean? Like it's like uh, what's you know the it's like very springy. If that's if that like spring into summertime, I guess is like you know the way I would do it, and it's just refreshing. I it's love. it's like the it's like the minutes after an evening thunderstorm, and it was hot all day, and you get that thunderstorm at the end of the day that breaks the heat. Yeah, you get uh, a little cool and feeling, it, and yeah, 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 and everything's cool outside. It's it's my favorite. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 quickly becoming one of mine. So make sure you check them out at barristerandman.com. Again, MTG rants for fifteen percent off. Uh, Russ. If people wanted to hear some more stuff from you or see some more of your stuff and your beautiful, beautiful face and beard, where would they go? 
You can go to my Twitter account. I am at Ross Hunneds, R-O-S-S-H-U-N-N-E-D-S. Good place to uh, keep abreast of all of my magic comings and goings. And a good place to ask me questions as I do try to get back to people as often as possible. Uh, then there's my written content on StarCityGames.com. My articles go up on Tuesdays. Um, this week's article is about the color hoser cycle, which is kind of funny because I, I had the idea to do an article about them because I think they're really interesting. And in particular, I think Burning Hands is very good as it made my top eight list. Uh, and I like the way I like the design space they're, they're in where I they're like, they're, yeah. yeah, they're not as, as, uh, as binary, like either really good or really bad as most color hosers are. And I think that makes them really interesting breaking away from that, um, which is, a, a, you know, typically a characteristic of color hosers. Um, and I, you know, told Sandrick that morning, I was like, okay, four of the five of them are previewed. Like, I want to wait till the fifth one. And he's like, oh, just go ahead and do it anyway. Like, you know, uh, and if the fifth one gets previewed, like before it goes up, like we can add to it. And then the, the, ne the next day, like the rest of the set was coming out. I was like, okay, it didn't come in in time. And I went to go see what it was. And there was just no blue one. And I'm like, okay, I guess we have all four then. So, uh, you know, it, it makes some of the, it makes the way I wrote the article a little weird because I wrote it as if there was going to be a fifth one, but um, if you want my rankings of, of those four, spoiler alert, Burning Hands is number one. Um, that's my That was my article from this week. I've also got some exit interviews coming out this week for Strixhaven. So I took part in, in the top five lists for, uh, for Strixhaven in both Pioneer and Modern. So if you want my review of my top five lists, uh, they're not pretty. I did not do very well. Um, you, need to listen, you need to listen to me more often. Yeah, you can you can get the, my review of them, and, and then in a uh, a new top five list based on the experience of the last three months. Those are going to be uh, those should both be out by the time y'all are listening to this. Um, so a lot of written content coming from me this week. Then versus live, uh, the web show I co-host twice a week with Corey Baumeister. Uh, you know we're we've been playing a lot with new cards from Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, don't worry, we will be getting back to modern, uh, you know, once we're through exploring adventures, we basically just try to play whatever people want to see. So if people still just want to see more modern instead of seeing, uh, standard, once the set drops, we will go back to modern. So, um, you know, we play whatever is relevant and, um, you know, have fun doing it. If you can catch us live, we're there one to 4 PM on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And we do take questions from the audience, which is great. If you can't catch us live, you can find the VODs on the Star City Games YouTube channel the following day by 5 p.m. They, those will get uploaded. Uh, and then finally, my stream. I know I haven't streamed in a while. Um, my plan right now is I'm actually moving in a couple of weeks, um, and I'll, I want to get it set up once I move. So I'm, I'm thinking August it, it's going to return. Um, don't hold me to that, but that's my current plan. Uh, and if you want to drop me a follow uh, in the meantime, and so you get notified once I start streaming again, I would appreciate that. And I am just Ross underscore Miriam. It's my name with the underscore on Twitch. Tannen, if people want to see more of your generally worse opinions, but better predictions of which cards are good, where might they go? Sure. Uh, the best place is probably my Twitter. It's at the Tannen Grace. Make sure you check me out there. And I do use Twitch uh, a decent amount. I probably will. If D&D is a, a good enough draft set, I should be streaming quite a bit on there. It's just Tan and Grace on there. So make sure you check us out there. Make sure you check out the Twitter for the uh, show that you're listening to right now, MTG Rants. And then there you can get a link to our Discord and to our Patreon channel as well. But that should be about it for this week's episode. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.